What happens when a Ballyhooed prospect fizzles? We'll talk about that and more with Yahoo Sports fantasy writer Scott Pianowski next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August 7th. It's show number 48 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Scott Pianowski, Yahoo Sports Fantasy writer, about post-hype prospects, the Tigers' bullpen. We'll have some listener questions, Scott's facts and flukes, and much more. We'll also have our regular weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about the wonders of Carlos Correa, the trouble with the Vickery method, and plenty more. And we'll have our player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Philadelphia second baseman Cesar Hernandez, Arizona starting pitcher Patrick Corbin and others, and from the American League with Jock Thompson, looking at Jason Kipnis going to the DL, Luis Severino stepping into the Yankees rotation, and much more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the Minor League Minute, analyst Rob Gordon reports on Braves infield prospect Hector Olivera. In our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at what might happen in Los Angeles if Jock Peterson continues to struggle. In our frequent flyers comment, Alex Becky looks at Aaron Brooks, Zach Godley, and Kurt Casale. In our matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at St. Louis left-hander Jaime Garcia visiting Milwaukee for a showdown with righty Willie Peralta, as well as a battle of southpaws in Kansas City with the White Sox Jose Quintana squaring off against the Royals' Danny Duffy, as well as some other matchups. And in Masternotes, I'll be talking about the strategic value of harracking. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? The league races are heating up. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday News and Notes edition, it's our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, but leading off, it's the National League report and our friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. And it's always good to have you. Uh, we're going to start with some Facts and Flukes coverage from BaseballHQ.com. Facts and Flukes is performance validation, where our analysts look at particular players who are doing uh, unusually well or unusually poorly, and then they ask, is this a fact? That is, is it going to stay uh, in that same direction or a fluke, which uh, we expect regression? And uh, one of the uh, players that Greg Pyron covered uh, just the other day in Facts and Flukes was uh, the second base shortstop in uh, Philadelphia, Cesar Hernandez. Yeah, Cesar Hernandez came up and did that usual thing that rookies sometimes do of doing or being very, very hot right at the beginning and and uh, uh, hit well, stole a bunch of bases, and people kind of went, uh, who is this guy, uh, and can he keep this up? And I, I think he sat on waiver wires probably a lot longer than he should have. Because uh, there was a suspicion that uh, here's a uh, here's a 25 year old that's getting his first taste of the majors and maybe uh, is is uh, way over his head and you know, you look at what Cesar Hernandez has done he's now become the regular second baseman and uh, in Philadelphia with Chase Utley uh, out and and I think they're going to keep him in the lineup uh, in one way or another he can also play shortstop uh, so they they've got some uh, some ways of moving him around he's played uh, uh, played some third base this year as well. 
So a lot of uh, a kind of uh, multiplayer, uh, multi-position uh, player, but has hit very, very well. Currently hitting 278 with, I think, 15 stolen bases. Uh, not bad at all for a guy who's been up since, uh, uh, since June 23rd. Um, and uh, certainly that batting average has not collapsed like we thought it might. He does hit a lot of ground balls. He doesn't have a lot of power, but the speed has been there, uh, and he's making good contact, 81% contact rate, uh, and so that's uh, that certainly helped, and he's getting on base enough that he can use that speed. So uh, Cesar Hernandez has actually proved to be worth something, especially with his multi-position uh, kind of versatility. Also like to see a guy who's got good speed uh, with that 10% walk rate, another way to find yourself aboard and, and add value to not only your fantasy team, but of course to the Phillies themselves. His stolen base percentage is touching on 80%, which is well above the break-even, which I think most people set at 71 72%, something like that. So if he's stealing bases at 79%, there's a good chance he keeps getting the green light, and that's a real important part of his value because there's no power here. No, there's no power at all. I mean, you, you certainly won't find that at all with with Hernandez. One home run and and a uh, PX of thirty of sixty three. So I mean, there, there's just nothing there in terms of the power department. So he's going to have to get on base. He's going to have to run. And so far, he's been doing that and uh, uh, doing it rather well. Yeah, his power index, all of the big uh, power metrics that we use, they're all well under league average, including hard contact. But on the other side including major league equivalents in his minor league performance over the last couple of years, plus his stint with the Phillies this year, he's maintaining a very consistent 26-27% line drive rate, and that's also very reassuring for his uh, batting average potential, which again adds to the possibility of reaching base and and away you go. And a 50% ground ball rate, now a lot of people look at that and they go, geez, I'm not crazy about that. But it could be that this is a player who understands his limitations and that every time he puts the ball in the air, given his lack of power, it's almost a sure out. Whereas if he beats it into the ground and he can really run, that's another way that he can get aboard. I, I, I like the package here. Yeah, I do too. I like the package. And I, you're right about that ground ball rate. I mean, if you've got a guy with good speed, uh, they learn very quickly that putting the ground, the ball on the ground certainly is the thing to do. It, uh, it may find a hole. It may simply go deep behind second base. And by then they're already at first. So, uh, that's the kind of a skill that works with this with this skill set. Greg Pyron notes that if Cesar Hernandez had enough plate appearances to qualify for the rankings, his 354 on base percentage would be sixth among all the second basemen in baseball and third among all the shortstops. So uh, Cesar Hernandez might be a guy to keep an eye on, especially if you're looking for bags assuming that he hasn't been snapped up already. Um, another uh, Facts and Flukes column written by Brian Rudd of BaseballHQ.com looked at some players, and one of them that caught my eye was J.T. Real Muto in Miami, a catcher, and we're always looking for those. Yeah, J.T. Real Muto was like, you know, came, came up and, and uh, early in the season and started uh, in Miami and uh, got off to a very, very slow start. For first 153 plate appearances, was hitting 208. Uh, and you kind of went, eh, here's another catcher who may be all right behind the plate, but I don't need him on my team. But but since then, he's really been doing very well. After those first uh, 153 plate appearances, since then he's hit 283, uh, 447 OPS uh, in the last 159 plate appearances. So this guy is certainly ready for the majors. Um, he's, again, not a guy with a huge amount of power. Uh, again, a, a below, kind of below Average uh, 99, 90 PX, uh, 99 hard contact rate. So not a huge amount of power, but some speed. Um, a speed index of 116 at this point. So right now he's put up, uh, let's see, if we look at it all together, 
I'm missing the numbers here, but I think it's six home runs, four stolen bases, uh, 247 batting average, but an XBA of 275. And over the last, uh, uh, the last 150 plate appearances, he's gotten there with a 283 batting average. So here's a guy that can be a, a very solid kind of catcher. He's not going to be spectacular, but, uh, certainly someone that can contribute sort of across the board. Uh, especially if you can get him at a second catcher slot. Yeah, I like I like the package here again, uh, Nick. Everything you say is right on the nose, especially the stolen bases. He's got 300 at-bats, more or less, at the big league level this year, and four stolen bases. So if you say, well, give him 500, five and, uh, 525 at-bats, something like that, you could be looking at a guy touching 10 home runs, getting close anyway, maybe eight stolen bases. And if he hits 270, boy, oh boy, that's a really good contribution from a second catcher. Yeah, it really is. If that, you know, how do your number two catcher slot? You would certainly take that in, in uh, almost any league. Also, a good uh, keeper target, Cesar Hernandez and JT Real Muto. If you're in a rebuilding mode in your league, you might want to lean hard on the on somebody that uh, is looking for a dump trade to get one of those two guys. Uh, Patrick Corbin of the Arizona Diamondbacks, Nick. Got off to a great start as a rookie pitcher, then a disaster befell him. He had to have Tommy John surgery, and now he's back. And Stephen Nickrand, our starting pitcher buyer's guide columnist, had a column about July base performance value leaders, and look who's on the list, Patrick Corbin. Now, Patrick Corbin, you know, not a surprise given his history prior to the surgery. A BPV of 136 uh, so far, but uh, what's what's kind of interesting and what might make him a decent target at this point is those are not that that um, that BPV and those skills are not yet showing up in his numbers. Three point nine nine ERA as a result of a twenty uh, percent home run per fly rate. So he's given up too many home runs, uh, and that's that's raising the ERA. But uh, skills are excellent. Uh, expected ERA of three point two one. Right now, DOM of nine point two, control of two point one. So uh, striking out uh, a lot more guys than he's putting on base. Uh, it looks as though those skills are are. are strong after the TJ surgery and now probably is a good time to try to scoop him up uh, before he starts putting up that 3.20 ERA and everybody notices. Yeah, Patrick Corbin looked really good in July especially and of course everybody wishes that they had had the courage to, to bet. Although I have to say in a couple of leagues that I know of including the Tau Ors mix that I play in uh, Patrick Corbin was taken during the draft in the expectation that he would return to action and that he would be a, a strong performer. So I don't know that Patrick Corbin is really catching anybody by surprise, except to the extent that we're always surprised when somebody comes back and does so well so right. quickly. I think you know, that's certainly a, uh, that you're, you're certainly right in that, that he's, uh, he's doing very well very quickly after rebounding from the surgery. And certainly he's going to be, I think, a decent contributor for the balance of the year. Sometimes at the end of Facts and Flukes, we'll have a little blurb called a first impression. And uh, Ryan Bloomfield, who of course is uh, here at Baseball HQ Radio and will be uh, on the show a little later on with his playing time segment, was looking at Joe Ross, the starting pitcher in Washington, and he liked what he saw. And now we get news that Joe Ross is not going to lose his rotation spot with Steven Strasburg coming back. Rather, they're going to you kick know, Joe Ross came up and, and pitched very well in his first uh, his first uh, six uh, starts and. And I think he sat on waiver wire perhaps longer than he should have, simply because folks felt he was going to go back to the minors or back to the bullpen. Uh, but he's pitched so well, they certainly doesn't deserve to be sent back down. Uh, and now, as you said, the news comes that he's going to stay in the rotation. At this point, Joe Ross is a 2.80 ERA, a 179 BPV, a 2.59 expected ERA, a 9.4 DOM with a control ratio below one. I mean, this guy has been just phenomenal at this point. Uh, and, 
if you if you're looking at consistency, has not allowed more than three earned runs in any outing. Has gone uh, at least six innings in every outing except his first when he pitched only five. So so far, very consistent, uh, pitching very very well. Uh, and a PQS line since that first start five five four five four five. So uh, putting up outstanding starts in every every uh, performance out. Eighty six percent dom in PQS. No disasters so far. Yeah, just that PQS3 at the start of the season that you mentioned. Uh, it was a shaky start, to be sure, but he still earned himself a PQS3, which means he didn't hand the game away to his opponent. He had a good swinging strike rate all the way along. He's been bouncing around 10 11% with one shot up to 21%. So everything, everything looks good for Joe Ross, and it's kind of interesting and reassuring that the Nationals, given the choice, decided to go with the rookie Ross rather than with the established veteran uh, Doug Fister. Yeah, it is indeed. I mean, you uh, you certainly look like looking at the numbers and looking at the performance that that's the way they should have gone, uh, and uh, it's good always good to see when a major league team is wise enough and has the courage enough to do that. All right, Nick. Uh, thanks very much for filling us in on these players. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com director of news and analysis and speculator columnist, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. Good to be back again. You know, out on the East Coast, we were all expecting the Yankees to make some kind of splash at the trade deadline, and they they really didn't do that much, and especially they didn't trade for a starting pitcher, which a lot of people thought they would, with a rotation ERA approaching four and a half, and with some uncertainty in terms of Michael Pineda, he's on the DL, uh, CC Sabathia has not pitched uh, well at all this year, so they called up Luis Severino, one of their top prospects, who was re- doing really well in the high minors. We covered this at BaseballHQ.com in the prospect call-up space and Matt Dodge covered it as well in playing time today and you covered it for USA Today Sports Weekly. So with all of that coverage we should know very well if Luis Severino is going to help the Yankees and more importantly whether he's going to help my fantasy team. Yeah this is kind of an interesting call-up simply because uh, Severino was one of the guys that uh, everybody asked for from the Yankees if the Yankees wanted their starting pitching and the Yankees held on to him and now they're going to have to use him because of, like you said, the, the problems they're having with their rotation. Severino's really good. He's a small guy, but he's got a live fastball and a really good changeup, has a little problem with his slider. But like you said, his minor league numbers are, uh, are terrific. Um, he's going to be in the rotation to stay, or at least I think so. That's what manager Joe Girardi says. And his first game was very indicative, I think, of his skills and how the Yankees are going to use him. He's going to be a five, six inning guy. His fastball played up. He didn't walk anybody. He struck out seven. Unfortunately, this was one of the games where the Yankees offense decided to go on the fritz and he didn't win. Uh, the final was two to one and the Yankees uh, defense let him down. He gave up an unearned run and then another run off of David Ortiz uh, uh, home run. But this is a guy, I think, who can help uh, uh, fantasy owners uh, going five, six innings a game over the uh, over the remaining couple of months here. I think uh, what you said about that is really interesting in that the Kansas City model was, we'll just get our starters through those six innings, and then we'll throw out the, some just tremendous ass-kicking bullpen, and we don't have to worry that the pitchers aren't going seven or eight innings a start because we don't need them to do that anymore. And that probably increases their longevity in the long run, but when you're talking about a 20, 21-year-old kid like Luis Severino, you're also 
it's a way that they can control his innings during the year while still getting most of the benefit from having him on the roster. Yeah, and the Yankee bullpen is really deep. It's not just Dallin Batances or uh, Andrew Miller. Uh, Shreve Chasson has been very good, 2.13 ERA. Uh, Justin Wilson has been very good, another guy with a sub-3 ERA. So they're very deep, and, they, and they're running most of their pitchers out five, six innings and then turn it over to the bullpen. Now, our uh, crack scouting team at BaseballHQ.com has covered, uh, as we said, Luis Severino's call-up was covered by Matt St. Germain. And earlier this year, Brent Hershey was out for a first-hand look at Severino in game conditions. And they seem to agree that if this kid doesn't learn how to get his legs under him and stop relying so much on his arm, that he's an injury waiting to happen. Now, that's probably not a short-term concern, but for uh, owners in keeper leagues, it's something to keep at least in the back of your mind. Yeah, exactly. It's, this is one of those odd cases where I actually think Severino might be a, a, a better short-term risk than long-term risk because of what scouts and observers are saying about the way he uses or the way he doesn't use his lower body and his mechanics. Uh, um, as long as he sticks to these five, six-inning stints within here, um, um, he's going to be decent, I think. Anything else going on with the Yankees rotation that the uh, savvy fantasy owner needs to keep uh, track of? Well, it's interesting. If you look at uh, Pineda, you mentioned him. He's got a forearm strain. He's not going to return till the end of September at the very earliest. If then we have him projected at 24 more innings pitch, which might be generous. Uh, forearms are, are never something to mess around with. Tanaka has been decent, 3.84 ERA, but of course he's still an injury risk. CC Sabathia is no longer the pitcher he once was. He's struggling with an ERA over five. And you, you've got both Ivaldi and Nova, who are now five and six inning pitchers. Ivaldi's still struggling to find some consistency with his secondary offerings. Uh, and Nova's struggling with his command following Tommy John surgery. I wouldn't be surprised to see Adam Warren back in the rotation and a, and a six man rotation going forward. And as you said, uh, very likely that a lot of the Yankee games are going to be five innings, six inning starts, and then throw it into the bullpen, which may have an effect on how much winning the starters will do because they might be leaving a lot of tie games. Uh, Jason Kipnis of the Indians having a tremendous year so far, not so much on the power side as we'll discuss in a second, Jock, but he's gone to the DL with a sore shoulder, and that apparently they now say has been bothering him all year, and don't you love it when they keep that to themselves? Uh, Tom Kephart Covered this in playing time today on Tuesday. Uh, Jose Ramirez has been called up to take Kipnis's roster spot, and he got three starts in a row, did okay out there. So let's talk about the situation, Jock. Starting off with uh, what's Jose Ramirez bring to the table? Well, Ramirez was actually the shortstop uh, at the beginning of the year before Francisco Lindor made his MLB debut. Uh, he'd had some MLB success uh, at the end of uh, 2014. He hit 262, but he stole 10 bases as well in, uh, in about 230 at-bats. And he's had a good AAA season. He's a small guy. Um, his game is based around contact and speed. He walked six times and hit a home run in the series uh, in Anaheim here, which I watched. He's not going to hit many home runs. Um, and he really doesn't walk that much. So interesting if he can uh, if he can get on base i think he's going to play a lot more than uh, than we haven't projected for initially and and i think this is a good time for cleveland to build up his trade value since there's just no room for him uh, starting there with lindor and kipnis on the team it really depends on when kipnis comes back but uh, if you're looking for speed and and maybe a guy who um um could could uh make contact uh uh and, and get lucky with his hit rate uh He's your guy. 
We're not projecting too much, Jock, for uh, Jose Ramirez at Baseball HQ, just a handful of at-bats. I, I suspect that the analysts of the Cleveland situation are looking at uh, Jason Kipnis to be back relatively soon, but what have you heard on that score? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Because we're talking about a sore shoulder that's bothered him all year with no no projection, no prognosis as to when he'll return, and Cleveland isn't playing for anything right now. So I guess the way I look at it is who, who knows when Kipnis is going to be back or even how well he plays in his return. If you look at his um, month-to-month progression, he didn't hit any home runs in July, um, and he didn't steal any bases either. His power progression, his metrics went down all season. That shoulder may be bothering him a little bit because he's definitely off on the home runs this year. I think the key thing you said there is Cleveland's not playing for anything, so you just wonder if they'll tell uh, Jason Kipnis, look, shut it down, get it right, come back next year and be ready to go, and I wouldn't surprise me one bit. So if somebody in your league is offering Jason Kipnis at a discount, uh, be very cautious is what I'll say, caveat emptor, as the old Romans used to say. Uh, Not totally unexpected news coming out of Texas. Leonis Martin got sent down uh, reportedly to see if he can get his bat going again. He's been having some pretty tough times. You wrote about that in Playing Time Tomorrow a few weeks ago, and you said at the time that center field should be Delano DeShield's job, and he started out there seven times in eight games. What's going on with Leonis Martin? Do you think he can turn things around? Well, Leonis Martin's plate skills have never been very good. Uh, He's relied on good speed and playing excellent defense in center field to keep that job. But he's run into some pretty poor hit rate luck this year. In the the previous two years, 2013, 2014, his hit rate has always been a little bit above 30%. You would assume he's using his legs to to outgain those poor plate skills. And when I talk about poor poor plate skills, I'm talking about a contact rate below 80%. Um, a walk rate uh, in the single digits. In fact, now it's in the mid-single digits. It's, it's at 5%. So he really doesn't have the plate skills to take advantage of his speed longer term. This year, he's really struggling against right-handed uh, pitchers. Uh, in the past, he hit, uh, he hit 280, I think, in 660 at-bats over the previous two years. This year, he's hitting just 213. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if he can get his act back together in, uh, in uh, AAA. What does DeShields bring to the table, and do you think he can hold on to the center field job for the balance of the season? I just traded for him, so please tell me I did good. Well, in, in your in in your favor, uh, Shields has DeShields has plus speed. In fact, he's probably got better speed than Martin. I think there's more upside to his base running. Um, he's similar to Martin in that he has no power. Um, the big difference between them, the two big differences. Um, at, at the plate, uh, it's a plus for DeShields. He has very good patience. He's getting on base at a 12% clip. So at the top of the lineup, when you can run like DeShields can, he's, he's been very effective for Texas. The problem you have is that his defense is very subpar. It's not nearly as good as, uh, as uh, uh, Leonis Martins is. Um, I think he's a stopgap guy, but I think for two months, uh, given how he's going, um, he's, he's another guy who's out hitting his expected batting average. Uh, he could help you. I got him strictly for the bags. Uh, BaseballHQ.com is projecting 14 of those, albeit with a relatively low batting average of around 220. And that surprises me a bit. His batting average so far this year is around 240, and his expected batting average is more in line with that, I think. But you know, I, I, ex- I accept that uh, Delano DeShields is not going to be uh, a high average guy because he swings and misses too much. 
but I'm hoping I get bags and I think I'm in the, in pretty good shape that way as long as he gets on base. But as you said, he walks a lot, which is a big plus to keep innings going. Managers like small guys, fast guys who take walks. So uh, let's keep our fingers crossed on my behalf, at least, <laughs> that uh, Delano DeShields gets enough at-bats to get me those 10, 12 bags I need. Uh, also in Texas, Jock, you mentioned that uh, there's a center fielder in the minor leagues in AAA right now. Lewis Brinson is a top prospect for the Rangers. Uh, talk about what he's doing this year. He's got good skills. And uh, when do you think he might uh, find his way onto a major league roster? Well, Lewis Brinson is essentially, uh, he's been watched by, by minor league analysts for a long time. And essentially, he's a toolbox who, who hasn't, uh, until this year, been making use of all of his tools. But um, he really jumped his, uh, his walk rate. He cut down on his strikeouts. Um, he hit 13 home runs and swiped 13 bases in uh, in high A in just 264 at bats, and he hit 337, surprising everybody. He was one of the leading hitters in uh, in the California League. Now the California League is a big offensive league, so you have to you have to uh, take some of that stuff with a grain of salt. But he's been jumped up to Double uh, A now. He's going to spend the last month there. His uh, plate approach and running game probably need further refinement. But he's a terrific center fielder. He's probably uh, as good, if not better, a center fielder both arm and, uh, and range-wise than either DeShields or Martinez right now. Um, he's unlikely to make his MLB debut until 2016 at the very earliest. But again, if, if you're in a keeper league and you're looking long-term, his upside is much better than either of the two current options the Rangers have. I was going to suggest that I don't think Brinson, for all the, the good he's doing in the minor leagues, is any immediate danger to show up and take uh, at-bats away from DeShields or Martin should he come back this year. Uh, mostly for playing time reasons and the contract reasons and so forth. They want to keep Brinson where he is. But also, Texas is now, I listened to a game the other night, they feel like they're in with a chance at catching a playoff spot again because that race has tightened up in the American League West and in the wild card. So I guess anything's possible. Staying in Texas, the back of the Houston rotation, Jock, is starting to look pretty interesting. They traded for Scott Casimir and Mike Fires. They already had Dallas Keuchel. They know a pretty good looking, uh, pretty good looking situation with Colin McHugh. Everyone was wondering how were the Astros going to fit six starting pitchers into a rotation, but Lance McCullough really uh, let the side down. Down a horrendous outing, uh, a third of an inning only, and right afterwards they sent him back to AAA, even though he's having not a bad season. What do you see going on with the Houston rotation? Yeah, I think this outing gave Houston the opportunity they were looking for to send McCullers down. Obviously, it was it was his worst outing of the year, simply put. He's been terrific this year in his in a, in a rookie year. 14 starts, 3.17 ERA. Uh, his his K uh, nine is over nine and a 49 percent ground ball rate. He's probably going to be, if he comes back and pitches like he has been, he's probably going to be a postseason starter if the Astros make it to the bull, to the to the postseason, which I expect they will. But this is a guy whose previous professional high had been 105 innings, and he's already passed that between the minors and the majors right now. The Astros are going to use these six starters they have to temper his workload, to keep his workload down. Um, and and this particular outing, outing gave them a chance to demote him. So and this is a nice luxury for a contender to have late in the season, uh, with which they can manage their rotation workload. They're always going to have guys who look fatigued or need a stint in the DL. They're going to be able to reset their rotation depending on who they're playing, the matchups in front of them. Um, this is going to drive fantasy over owners crazy, but again, it's one of the divergences between the real game and fantasy. And I wonder what they think they've got in Mike Fires. His uh, August outing, his first outing, uh, he got a start. I, I don't know how many innings he went, I don't remember, but I don't think he got out of... Uh, 
uh, out of whatever he was doing. I don't think he got an out, maybe one strikeout. But according to our records, 162 ERA and a 24 whip. So uh, Mike Fires didn't impress anybody either. Uh, finally, speaking of rotations, the Angels now look like they're bleeding a little with uh, C.J. Wilson. They announced he needs elbow surgery, probably going to put him out for the year. Jared Weaver's still on the DL, although I've heard he's supposed to be coming back. What's going on with Weaver and Wilson? Well, it's an interesting situation with Wilson, who's going to be a free agent following the 2016 season. Some observers think Wilson is putting himself before a team in the postseason hunt by getting surgery now in the hope that he has a stellar and injury-free 2016 so he can sign another contract. Um, and a lot of, uh, apparently some players think he's still able to pitch now, and the stats suggest that he is. Uh, this is reportedly producing some grumbling from his teammates, i.e. that he's quitting on the team, particularly given his, his current $16 million salary and the $20 million he's going to make with the Angels next season. From a fantasy standpoint, Wilson has been marginally profitable. He's got a 3.89 ERA. He's striking out almost eight batters per nine innings, and he's got eight wins to date. So right now, from what I understand, the Angels are, are trying to talk Wilson uh, out of surgery and telling him, hey, you can still be effective in the pen. Let's see what happens. Let's, let's try to use you out of the, out of the bullpen. Um, I don't think they're going to have any luck. I've zeroed out his innings. Uh, obviously, if he comes back, I'll, uh, I'll change my viewpoint. But right now, he's uh, apparently Wilson is still leaning to surgery. It's funny how everybody gets mad at a guy for trying to maximize his income when it's what we all try to do, right? Uh, I know that there are, there are issues where you know, people say you should do what's best for the team. But we know, sadly enough, that uh, oftentimes the team is not so willing to do what's good for the player. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, I mean, it's it's just it's one of those things. That's baseball. Uh, I I certainly don't have any, uh, you know, <laughs> as an Angel fan, any any ill will toward Wilson. I'd probably be doing the same thing. Do they have any minor leaguers? The Angels? Is there anybody like cavalry riding to the rescue there? Well, it's interesting. You have Weaver, who would be the natural the natural to take Wilson's spot. He's still on the DL. He's in he's in rehab in the high A. And of course the Angels are saying, oh, we love what Weaver's doing down there. Here's the problem. Weaver's velocity is still down to 83-84. If you look at his numbers, he's getting away with zero mistakes. His home runs are up. His his dominance, his strikeouts per nine are way down. Um, if he's not throwing 83-84, I sure wouldn't trust him as, from a fantasy standpoint. And if he can't return, you've got Nick Tropiano. He's another fly, uh, fly ball pitcher who's shown flashes in Angel Stadium. Um, but he's a prospect with number five upside, still a risky fantasy play. Uh, he's The Angels are hoping he'll be their next Max Shoemaker. And there are some similarities in that he's a command fly ball guy who relies on secondary offerings. But uh, I don't think hope is a plan for fantasy owners. <laughs> yeah, hope is not a plan. I, ha- I used to work for a guy whose uh, motto was that exact sentiment. Uh, Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. Very interesting as always, and we'll talk to you again in a week's time. Okay, PD, sounds good. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis and a Speculator Columnist at BaseballHQ.com. When we come back, our feature guest interview with Yahoo Sports fantasy writer Scott Pianowski, coming up next on Baseball HQ Radio. First of all, I want you to know that this honor that was brought upon me here could not have happened without the great work and the advice and guidance that I've had from three of the most wonderful people that I know. And if either of them weren't here today, I know that this day could not be complete. But they're all here, and I just hope you don't mind if I just pay a, a word of thanks and a, a tribute to my advisor and a wonderful friend, a man who I considered a father, Mr. Branch Rickey. And, 
And my mother, who taught me so much of the important things early in life, I appreciate no end. My mother, Mrs. Robinson. And, and, and lastly, ladies and gentlemen, my wife, who has been such a wonderful inspiration to me and the person who has guided and advised me throughout our entire marriage. I, I couldn't have been here today without her help. And then I... And sitting down, I must thank the baseball writers. I never thought at all that I would have this wonderful honor coming to me so early in my lifetime. And to have the writers to elect me on the first time is a thrill that I shall never forget. We have been up in cloud nine since the election. I don't ever think I'll come down. But I want to thank all of the people throughout this country who were just so wonderful during those trying days. I appreciate it no end. It's the greatest honor any person could have. And I only hope that I'll be able to live up to this tremendously fine honor. It's, it's something that I think those of us who are fortunate again must use in order to help others because it's such a tremendous honor that we should be able to go out and do things to help. I'm just grateful and I'm sorry it's taking so long, but I just wanted you to know I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Baseball HQ Radio. Baseball HQ Radio wants to hear from you. So we've set up a new email address dedicated to Baseball HQ Radio podcast listeners. Send your email to bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. Give us your ideas about new features on the podcast or how we can improve the existing features. Ask a question for one of our expert guests, our regular beat reporters, or our commentators. And if you can record your question as an MP3 or Aug Vorbis audio file and send it to us as an attachment, we'll put it in the show. And let us know what guests you'd like to hear on Baseball HQ Radio. In short, Anything you'd like us to know that would help you enjoy Baseball HQ Radio more, you can let us know by emailing us at bhqradio, all one word, all lowercase, at gmail.com. That's bhqradio at gmail.com. And we look forward to hearing from you. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our feature expert interview, and it's our pleasure to be joined by Yahoo Sports fantasy writer Scott Pianowski. Scott, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Pleasure to be here, Patrick. Thanks for having me. I normally start these uh, interviews by asking how your fantasy teams are doing, but I know how one of them's doing. You're breathing right down my neck until war is mixed. Yeah, we're having a real fun race. Um, right now, Tim Haney, I think it's Haney, is in first place, 102 points. I am in sixth place, 93.5 points, but you know, in the hunt to theoretically cash, and uh, you're right there in fourth. So looks like a really fun season. Fred Zinke's in there, as he usually is. So I'm really looking forward to the stretch run in tout. I don't think I can win, but uh, it's probably going to be a decent finish for me, and so it should be a lot of fun. It's been a fun baseball season. I think I have 10 teams, and the majority of them are in contention as well. If the season ended right now, I think I would win three leagues. Wow. If things went really well down down the stretch, maybe I'd, I'd do better than that. But I, I think I only have two bad teams out of the ten, and most of them are in the top three or four. So it's been a fun season. How do you manage ten successful teams? I know it's, it's sometimes people just drop their unsuccessful teams, but if you've got a bunch that are in the money, that must take up a lot of time, or it seems like it must. I do have a lot of other responsibilities and a busy life like we all do. But I actually wrote an article 
um, when I used to work for FantasyGuru.com maybe seven, eight years ago before I went to Yahoo, I wrote an article about being in too many leagues, and I think they still have it on the site. They may have tweaked it a little bit. But it talked about a lot of times maybe doubling up with another owner is a good idea if you find somebody that you like and, and you see eye to eye to. Uh, my long-running hometown keeper league uh, based out of Chelmsford, Massachusetts, nobody lives there anymore, but we still call it the Chelmsford League. I have a co-owner, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, just somebody else always cares about the team. If you don't have time for the lineup, he can do it. So I think doubling up on ownership is really smart. I think steering people to run the league on the same website a lot of times is good. Most of my leagues are on Yahoo because you know, I work there. I live there. It's where my online presence is. So it's easy to toggle between my different teams, and I know the navigation really well. And so I think that, that helps with some of the maintenance. But uh, my, my strongest recommendation, other than, hey, please play on Yahoo, but strongest recommendation would be, you know, being a co-owner is a great thing. I, I, I was too much of a control guy maybe 20 years ago to do it, but it's become probably my favorite experience because I get to share it with a good friend of mine. And, again, you know, the work for fantasy baseball is a ton of work. We love doing it, but it really is a ton of work. So being able to cut that in half uh, goes a long way as well. I know you play uh, daily fantasy baseball. You write extensively about it for Yahoo Sports, making recommendations and player picks and so forth. And uh, I wonder, A, do you ever uh, consider playing with a partner? And B, how are you doing in the in the sport generally? Yeah, I haven't thought about partnering up on that, but uh, it's an interesting idea. And, and again, any the success of any fantasy game comes down to community and relationships. Uh, I've done pretty well in the, in the Tout Daily game that we've done, which is that Friday game and then the Tuesday game. Uh, the Friday one is the one I'm really focused on because there's, there's, you know, there's more money in it. But um, but also because it's a season long competition, and I, I want to see how I'm doing in the. I think I'm second overall in points, which uh, out of 42, which I feel good about. I know a lot of us are. Uh, it's our first. This is really the first year I've played daily seriously. I kind of dabbled in it last year. We didn't have a game at Yahoo yet. I wasn't writing about it yet. But now I'm I'm invested in it in the sense. And then once you write about something, you're invested. I mean, when I write a column, I want those guys to do well. And if they don't do well, I certainly hear about it kind of the way the game works, and I'm fine with that. But it's been a fun daily season. I, I've been successful. I've, I'm in, I'm, I have a little bit of a profit. It isn't a huge amount when you add up everything I've played. Uh, so it's too early to draw any conclusions about how good I am at it. But it, it's fun, and I, I think you have to see it in the long view. You, you don't want to get too hung up on, oh, my picks for like, like anything in baseball, you really have to grade it over the over the long term and, and take a bigger sample out of it. But I'm having a lot of fun with it. I haven't ever taken on a partner for it. I don't play very often. But having said it to you, I'm thinking to myself, that might not be a bad way to go because there's so much uh, data that you have to grind through in the course of putting together a decent fantasy baseball line up for, for daily play. Uh, people think, oh, it's just pick some players. But if you want to be good at it, it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of investigation and finding out the matchups and so forth. And I wonder if maybe uh, forming syndicates of one kind or another could be a, a solution. That's a great idea. You know, there was a brief moment for maybe a few weeks where Michael Salfino, Steve Moyer, Gene McCaffrey, and I were trading a lot of emails. It would be, okay, are you, are you playing tonight? Do you like anybody? And uh, at the time, Michael was doing, I thought, a great daily column for the Wall Street Journal. Unfortunately, the the journal decided to to cut that column. Not that Michael was doing anything wrong, but I guess they just wanted to go in a different direction with some of their coverage. And I I haven't 
spoken to Gene or uh, Steve about that much recently, but I mean, I know that you you've had all those guys on your program, and they're they're just good friends of mine anyway, and I like talking to them. And like anything else, when you on your own come up with some sort of analysis, or you dig into some things, and then you talk to people who've done it on their own, and you kind of meet and, and see, you know, what have I overlooked, or okay, you know, Gene's uncovered something, or Steve's got an idea, and, and you know. And, you look at these guys, I mean, you know, Michael's got so many great ideas with stat analysis, and you know how Gene's always digging digging up stuff, and, and Steve, you know, works for a company that is doing all this cutting-edge, revolutionary baseball analysis. I mean, to tell you the truth, sometimes I feel like the weakest member of those four guys, but um, it's, a, it's a lot of fun to trade ideas with them, and it makes it more interesting, and it certainly helps you, and I, I end up with a more informed opinion at the end of it. Do you see daily fantasy baseball continuing to grow? Yeah, I do. I do because I think it's fun, and I think it probably uh, well. For one thing, it's a little bit more like fantasy football. It makes fantasy baseball more like fantasy football, which is probably a good thing for the companies that run these games. And I think it appeals to what a younger generation likes. They like things to be more immediate. They like things to have a quicker resolution, and that's what daily gives you. It gives you uh, the the one day high of, of getting in, of formulating a team, seeing how it does, and at the end of the day, you have a resolution. I, I think, to, I don't want to go off on a rant, but I, I think today's youth doesn't necessarily have the patience for a game that takes six months. And it could be, I've, I've talked to people about this in the past, and there's some hope among pl- uh, players who really prefer to play the season-long games that it's a, it's a natural next step for young people who are used to playing daily and get to enjoy the aspect of playing fantasy baseball, but as they get older and, and acquire more responsibilities, jobs and, and stuff, families and stuff like that, that they might gravitate towards uh, the season-long format because, somewhat paradoxically, it's less work. That's an excellent point. And, and I love the fact that the Tout Daily game, the Friday game, has a daily component, has a monthly component, and has a seasonal component. So it's not just, I mean, I, I want to measure myself over more than one day. And, uh, in, 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 again, I'm looking at how have I done against these guys over the last month? How have I done against these guys for the balance of the season? And I think one important part of daily is they, they need to find more ways to build community and a sense of, you know, I, I don't know, people you want to measure against or you want to play against people you know or just a sense of you're not just playing against 15,000 strangers or, or 100 strangers or whatever it is, but that you're actually building some sort of community, some sort of shared experience. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, too. That's uh, You usually get into these leagues because you want to show off your acumen in baseball and your ability to figure things out and play the game and know the players, but uh, inevitably you always end up becoming friends uh, with a lot of the other players in your league and it be- does become more of a social thing and that's when the league be- really gets some some staying power you mentioned that you've been in the in your hometown league that's a, a league of very long standing yeah early 90s i first started playing fantasy baseball in 88 in, in a different league and i got in that league i think they started it in 91 and i was off of college and then in 1992 i got in it and still the core owners of the i think maybe 75 percent of the original owners are still in it and uh you know, the draft day is, is a huge day. I, I, I usually draft in person, and it's just a homecoming for me. Just like that Tout weekend is, is something that we all enjoy in Tout Wars, chance to reconnect with people. And 
I know I've said this before on this program. I mean, to anybody who knows fantasy is just an online experience. And, and look, I, I love the Internet. I love the online experience. Again, you know, I'm, I'm going to pitch Yahoo every chance I get. But there's nothing like an online draft or auction. There's nothing like that experience of doing it. In per- especially you think of the pace of the tout auction so quick. You don't really have that much time while players up to decide what you want to do. A lot of it's instinctual. Sometimes you, you think, what did I just do? Why didn't I bid on him? Why did I pass? Or why did I actually buy this player? But that's part of the fun. So I hope everybody who plays fantasy has some sort of offline element when they get to do this stuff because I, I don't think there's anything that compares to it. And I think you can really say the same thing about a lot of experiences in our lives that in some instances the online community has supplanted the real face-to-face community in a lot of ways. And that has tremendous good aspects about it. But I agree with you. There's nothing like sitting beside the guy you're bidding against and little body language to interpret, you know, a little bit of uh, enjoyment when you scoop a guy that somebody else wanted and you see him trying not to look you know, sad or angry. It's it's just adds that personal element that makes it a little bit more fun. I've played online leagues, of course, too, and and uh, I enjoy them, but boy, there's nothing like the real thing, as they say. No, I completely agree with that. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, earlier this week at your site, you wrote about Jesus Montero under the premise, if Jesus Montero is the answer, what's the question? And I'll bite, uh, I'll say Jesus Montero is the answer. What's the question? <laughs> well, for one thing, I, I wanted to bring up that old great joke about uh, graffiti in a in a bar somewhere, and it's Jesus is the answer, and then somebody writes under it, "What's the question?" And somebody writes under that, "Who was the third alu?" <laughs> uh, just uh, maybe I don't know what it is about that. After uh, the three baseball playing alu brothers, one of them being Jesus alu, but yeah, Montero's a fun player for me in that so much was expected of him when he came up with the Yankees and. He was traded in this high-profile deal for uh, Michael Pineda a few years ago, and he ended up getting heavy uh, that his Montero did, and uh, couldn't really play his position. He's, big part of his value was that oh, we're going to have a hitting catcher, and then that kind of went away. But this year he comes into camp and he's lost forty pounds, and, and he's finally in really good shape, and you know, he has this. Uh, 346, 388, 555 run at AAA Tacoma, 16 homers in 93 games. And now he's up with the Mariners, and he's out of options. The team's out of contention. They need to figure out if Montero's any good. And they're just going to let him DH and play first base and and take his swings and and try to figure out at 25 if they have anything left here. And I like the fact that he's going to get the playing time. I like the fact that he's built up some confidence. I certainly like the fact that he's finally put himself in the shape he should have been in all along. So I, I think for certainly, he's, I'm sorry she's scooped up in AL only leagues already, but I think even in, in mixed leagues, he's, he's worth the flyer. Um, I was certainly playing him in daily and then seasonal during the Colorado series. He didn't go crazy in that series, but he had some good swings. And I think they're going to let him play the rest of the way. I, I think it's entirely possible he could hit around 300 with some power. Uh, again, there's always been a leap pedigree here, and I'm going to chase it a little bit. So it sounds like the question uh, for which Jesus Montero is the answer is, who's a player that you might want to take a chance on for the stretch, given uh, all of the improvements that he's made? And <coughs> Excuse me. If Jesus Montero, Scott, is not the answer, what's the question? <laughs> you know, I'd probably get thrown off jeopardy because I wouldn't phrase the, I wouldn't phrase the final answer in the form of a question. But I, I, just, I just fall in love with these post-op hype guys. I love... 
a player who was supposed to be good and the development pattern and development uh, flow is different for every player. But I love a guy who we thought was going to be very good who gets off track for whatever reason. And then now you can get in on these guys when you don't have to fight for them anymore. They're not buzzy. They're not huge fab costs or anything like that. I love the idea of getting in and knowing that there's always been a bank of skills here. And in the case of Montero, it wasn't like it was all single-A, double-A stuff or he was good in college or something. He was actually drafted as a teenager. But it's somebody who actually had tangible success in the major leagues, too. So I always feel like those guys just let the public forget about them a little bit, let them get down on them a little bit, and justifiably so. But I'm just a sucker for these for these post-hype stories, for these reclamation projects. And, again, the development curve or the like can go on for people at different times for different reasons. I mean, maybe it's just a matter of confidence in being in better shape with Montero. I was going to ask about that. It's easy to see with these players when the hype is over, the player has struggled or failed at the big league level and everybody forgets about him. But how do you pick out the guy who's going to be a post-hype success? I mean, honestly, a lot of times guessing. Um, I think part of the reason why I'm also willing to invest on Montero is catching is such a physical and mental drain, and he no longer has to do that. And I think, I can't think of any hitter who was ever sad to, anybody who was primarily a hitter, I can't imagine they were ever sad to lose the catching, just to take all that equipment off and all the physical beating you have to do. I, I think it's amazing that like Buster Posey is as good as a hitter as he is when he still catches 120, 130 games a year. That blows my mind. Or Yadier Molina was so good for so long. I think he's finally losing his power now and probably just caught too many games. But I, I think, again, a lot of it's guesswork. Um, but with Montero, I, I have to help him. He's no longer catching. I think it's a big reason why he's finally starting to put it together offensively. At least I think he could be. I know most of this run has happened in AAA. He hasn't been up in the majors yet. I don't want to act like this is a full-developed story, but I think it's a good time to get in. Uh, at your Yahoo Sports Roto Arcade column, you also wrote about Aaron Hicks of the Twins, who seems like another post-hype type of guy. They moved him into the leadoff spot I saw the other day somewhere. Uh, what is it that you like about Aaron Hicks? Again, he was somebody who was very high in prospect boards a few years ago, but he came up with the Twins in 2013, 2014, and did not hit a lick, 192 and then 215, but still just 25, a little bit of pop, a little bit of speed. And I know a lot of people are screened on this story because Byron Buxton's going to come back eventually, but you know, Buxton's got this thumb injury. I think the Twins are thinking long-term with him. I don't, I don't think they're going to rush him back. I the fact that Hicks, and, and by the way, Hicks, I think over the last 30 days, has been a top 12 fantasy outfielder. He's actually been better than McCutcheon and Braun and some other big names. I love that he's getting finally getting a good lineup spot. I like that he has a good batting eye, some power, decent speed. And again, three or four years ago, he was on all the prospect lists. as a, like a top 20, top 30, top 15 prospect, depending on where you looked. Still just 25. I mean, maybe it's another case of he's finally gained some confidence or You've gotten his batting mechanics where he wants them. He certainly feels comfortable on the bases, 9 out of 12 steals. He's on a great run right now, promoted in the lineup. Uh, everything seems to line up. All the arrows seem to line up for me here. I like the fact that he's 25. You know, they, the people don't understand. I, I think we get this uh, this hype about prospects, and the guy gets into the big leagues at 19 or 20, or 21 in the case of Hicks, uh, and 
we expect that he's just going to be good right away and, and people forget how hard it is. And, and you're 21 years old and you don't succeed for the first time in your baseball life. Probably you're not the best player on the field. You're not enjoying a fantastic level of success. And it's so easy to give up on a guy forgetting that he's that young. And then he kind of scoots around the, the minors for a while and figures things out. And he comes back, he's 25. He's physically more mature and stronger. He's mentally more mature and experienced. I like the idea of getting on these guys who flop at a very early age at the major league level and then come back and try again at 24, 25, 26, because I think there's, I've never done any research, but it seems like there's a good chance you're going to find guys there also because the organizations know what they have in a lot of instances. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I've heard, remember people, maybe it was John Benson talk about 25 with experience or 26 with experience. I actually think there's something to be said just for playing at the major league level, no matter how you play, just getting your feet wet and playing 40, 50, 60 games, playing a couple of seasons, just so it's their time to figure out how is the game different, where do I need to improve, how do I need to adjust, that type of thing. That I mean, there's so many examples. Even like Mike Trout, his first go-around in the major leagues, he was not very good. And then, of course, the next year he came up and decided, okay, I'm going to be the best player in baseball for the next 10 years, so get get ready for me, but... It's just—it's like anything else. I mean, anybody in a new environment, you think of your freshman year in college, you don't know where anything is, you don't know where the buildings are, you you don't know, you know how the cafeteria is, you don't know your roommates. It's just a learning experience. And I, I think I remember when I came back from my sophomore year, uh, you know, if I was a fantasy commodity in college, everybody would have dropped me my freshman year, and they all would have picked me up my sophomore year. But it's just a matter of being comfortable and, and knowing you're now at a different level of, of, uh, of a game and, and knowing how everything works and where you fit in. It's a good analogy. My first time I went to college right out of high school, as most people do, and I wasn't good at it. I wasn't mentally ready, and I, my study habits weren't well-developed and all of those kind of things. And so I left college for a number of years, and I you know, did other things. And in my mid-20s, I went back to university, and I succeeded very well because I was just better prepared for it, for one of another term. And why can't that be the case for athletes? It is a great. I, I'm just going to agree with that. I think it's an excellent point, and I agree. In your recent column about Joanna Cespedes going to the Mets in trade, you suggest that maybe it's time for his happy owners to, and I'm quoting here, lock in your profits and move along. What does that mean, lock in your profits? Well, first of all, I want to say that uh, I told everybody not to draft Giannis Cespedes before the season, and uh, I've taken a beating on that because he's, far surpassed what I expected, and I think anybody who was high on him in March has to feel justified. So all you suspicious owners out there, all the people who've told me that, trust me, I, I've been reading and I've been listening and I've been nodding that you guys have gotten this right. But he's still, to me, he's what I call a spectacle in that his big skill is power, and, and you know he's won a couple home run derbies, and although he hasn't hit a tremendous amount of home runs in, in the majors as of yet, he may get to his highest total this year. But he's somebody who he's got that strong arm in the outfield, and sometimes he hits the ball 500 feet. But he generally doesn't hit for the greatest average, although this year the average has been higher than we expect. A lot of times his on-base percentages are low. doesn't walk that much. He strikes out a lot. His stolen base success has actually been kind of hit or miss. I always think that the players who are quietly good at a lot of different things, I think of somebody like Hunter Pence, are undervalued in fantasy and the players who are really good at, at the exciting things like home runs, but maybe at the expense of some other things are generally tend to be overrated in fantasy. 
And when you also combine that Cespedes was going to a Mets lineup that struggled, it's actually been hitting in the last week or so, but it's been one of the worst offenses in baseball. He's going to the pitcher league. He's going to a division that has a lot of good pitchers, no longer in that really deep Detroit lineup that was scoring like crazy right before he left, even without Cabrera. Just thought it might be, you know, maybe even some extra pressure as well because he's going to a team that needs him to almost be an offensive savior. I thought there was a decent chance that Cespedes might hit a dip in New York and he might have been playing over his head anyway and not in line with what his career norms are in some of his categories. So I, him being a spectacle, going to a weaker offense, going to a more pitching-centered league, obviously with the pitchers hitting, the lineups don't turn over as much. I, I just thought you could probably, because he's a spectacle, he's a name, he's an exciting player, he does the thing we like most in fantasy, which is hitting long home runs. I thought maybe you could get an overpayment. And, and I know a lot of people are going to think, well, I'm just doubling down, I'm you know, I gave out a bad opinion in March, and I'm just trying to chase it. But I honestly do think that his stats are going to come down for the final, what, third of the season we have left. Uh, Baseball HQ's projection for Ioannis Cespedes is basically for him to keep going, a little bit of decline in batting average, which we'd expect. I don't think anybody ever thought he's a 300 hitter, but uh, down around 280. But, you know, eight home runs, 28 to 30 runs in RBIs, not a bad finish. I guess I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But I like the idea that if you have Uena Cespedes and he's having a good year, this might not be a bad time to make a trade for him because there are a lot of people in a lot of leagues who don't look at the numbers. They don't look at the change in venue. They just look at Uena Cespedes, the guy that won the two home run derbies. I'm in. And they might give you maybe a little more than, than he deserves. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Do you... The argument against Joannis Cespedes is that he goes from a very powerful Detroit lineup into a relatively weak Mets lineup, although that's been improving a little bit. And do you believe in this whole idea of lineup protection, or how do you square that with the idea that Joannis Cespedes may have some uh, issues now that he's in New York? You know, lineup, I was just talking about this with Michael Safina the other day. I, I consider lineup protection a lot like clutch hitting. In, in baseball, and that I think the problem all along has been the definition of the term. Uh, some people look at clutch hitting and say, oh, it's not true. You know, people just don't become superhuman in, in bigger events when, when the lights are on and when the games mean more. And I think clutch has just been defined incorrectly. And I think what actually clutch is to me is, is somebody who holds their water and actually maintains what we expect from them, even when the stakes are higher or there's more pressure. As far as lineup protection, it's been pretty much debunked that just because there's a good hitter in back of you doesn't mean that you're going to get all these you know fat pitches to hit or whatever. But to me, lineup protection means just being having people to drive in and having people who can drive you in and just being surrounded by a good lineup where your production stats are, there's a buoyancy there because you have good offensive pieces around you. So to me, that's what lineup protection means. It isn't the idea that, oh, we're really afraid of the guy behind you, so here, we're going to make sure you get a good pitch to hit. Yeah, and I think that's an excellent point. I, I I think we shouldn't even really call it lineup protection, maybe lineup production or overall lineup strength or something like that, because that does make a lot of sense. I mean, it, it's not necessarily the case that when Cespedes was hitting in a lineup with you know JD Martinez and uh, and uh, Miguel Cabrera and guys like that that they were somehow encouraging pitchers to throw him better pitchers. Nobody's doing that, I don't think. But it's certainly the case that if he if Cespedes reaches base, he stands a much better chance of scoring, frankly, than he does if he's on the Mets. 
because the players in the Detroit lineup are going to hit more and harder, generally speaking, up and down the lineup than the Mets are. And similarly, there are going to be more guys for Ioannis Cespedes to drive in because they're a better lineup than the Mets. So I don't think that it's unrealistic. Right. I mean, maybe lineup installation is, is, is a way to look at it. This is probably a nice, punchy way to describe it. But again, I think we've just been tripped up all these years by the terms, and it, it, there's really something here. It's just been there's been a poor definition to a term that's been easy to knock down, and it maybe skewed the thinking away from a theory that actually holds some, you know, makes some sense. In, In that same article, Scott, you uh, talked about the psychology of fantasy stats. Is that what you were talking about earlier with the uh, he's a big name type of thing? Yeah, you know, just the spectacle of home runs. Um, that again, that. I don't think it's ever as exciting for people to own a guy like Hunter Pence who the batting average isn't as interesting to people. Like, I mean, you know, Hunter Pence hits a lot of singles and doubles, and that doesn't drive, um, it just doesn't have a, you don't have a visceral reaction to that the way you do when somebody hits the ball over the moon. I've, a lot of people killed me for this, but I, I think Giancarlo Stan is a little bit overrated. Uh, I, I know he's probably going to hit 50 home runs if he stayed healthy this year, and I feel bad for anybody who you know, got hurt. Nobody could have seen that coming, but. I, I just, to me, I always, I, Bill James talked about Dwight Evans and how Dwight Evans was good at so many different things and maybe built a Hall of Fame resume and that players, and I think I may have even said this on this podcast before, players who are good at a lot of different things tend to be underrated and players who are specialists. And, and again, I think of a specialist in, in the home, you know, a power specialist, which I think Suspedis is. Not that he's a bad player elsewhere, but I mean, he really focuses on those power things. People love that so much. I just always think those things are going to be a little bit overrated. Uh, and, and again, he hasn't run that much. I, I do think he's not a great batting average bet, although he's hitting for a high average now. I just, to me, I always like those boring across the board players who do a lot of different things, but I don't think you have to necessarily pay for them as such, as opposed to the specialist guys who do a couple of things really, really well that seems to draw more attention. And for me, the poster child for that is J.D. Drew, who who was one of those ballplayers. I remember uh, seeing a press conference with Theo Epstein when he was still in the, running the Boston organization, and the reporter said, why do you keep running J.D. Drew out there? He doesn't have a lot of RBIs. And Epstein looked at him like, you know, are you, are you crazy? He's the best player we have. And he actually said, if you look at everything he does, he fields his position flawlessly. He runs the bases flawlessly. He hits for average. He draws walks. He does everything that you would want a successful baseball player to do. But he doesn't necessarily ring up those kind of um, sports page stats that we've all been trying to learn, I think, over the years to get away from. And for that reason, J.D. Drew, even though he wasn't a spectacular player, was, as you said, he was a highly productive player. And when guys are good at their defensive responsibilities, it also helps them stay in the lineup. And I think that's an underestimated factor as well. That's a great point. That's really the fantasy takeaway for defense is we want these guys to still have a lineup spot when they're not hitting. And I, I think base running is one of the most underrated parts of baseball in general. I, one of my favorite players was Paul Molitor, and I, I loved how he always wanted an extra base to the point that when he got his uh, hit number 3,000, he, he dunks this kind of lazy fly ball into right center field. It's going to be an easy double for anybody. And Molitor just turned on the Jets around second and decided he's going to get a triple. And I mean, think of how silly his uh, hit 3,000 looks if he gets thrown out at third base, but... <laughs> 
he, he read the play so well. And, and that, I think, is so many of my favorite athletes in any sport. And, and reading the play is, is something that they're all good at. You know, Wayne Gretzky was great at that. Paul Mulder read the play so well. And he sees that he can get an extra base. And I think base running is one of the more – we've seen a big defensive revolution maybe in the last few years. I wonder if base running is one of those untapped, maybe a, a marketplace that, that hasn't fully been recognized or uh, quantified or put put into value. But I, I really get excited watching a team that runs the base as well. A stat cast, I think, will probably help with that. We're already seeing some applications where uh, that the certain players cut the corners on the bags just right to minimize their time between the bases, and other players take these big looping paths, just like they do to fly balls. And as a result, uh, certain players get to third base on that first to third, and certain players have to stop at second or get thrown out. And it's a huge difference, and it's another thing that maybe we don't capture yet in the uh, statistical package, but you can bet that that guy's manager is noticing, you know what, that guy never gets thrown out of third. I got no reason to take him out of a game ever. He always gets to the, you know, throws the ball to the right base, always makes the right decision on the bases. He gets to play. Even in the late innings, maybe he's not the fastest guy in the world, but he's not going to be the outfielder I replace with Gerard Dyson or somebody. I also, maybe it's some of my personal bias, because I was never a fast player, but I always thought that I was really good about running stealing bases or just taking the extra base or reading the play. It's, it's, so maybe there's some element where I feel like I can relate to those types of players because that's the type of player I was too. There, there is that. Uh, Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick David with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And uh, Scott, after the Tigers traded Joaquin Soria out of the league, uh, there was some question about what would go on in the Detroit bullpen. And Alex Wilson steps up out of no place to get a five-out save. But you seem less than sure that Wilson can hold the job. What's your issue? Well, you know, maybe I, I should be more sure because he's since gotten a second save. And it, it might be this process of elimination because they don't like Albuquerque late late in games. And, and Rondo probably walks too many guys. Wilson's a fun player because he doesn't walk anybody. But he doesn't strike out anybody either. His strikeout rate is just over five per nine. But he's getting a lot of ground balls. He's improved his ground ball rate this year. And... We've seen so many times with the saves that there's a momentum to a lot of times the managers, whoever got the last save, whoever was the was the last person standing successfully in the ninth inning, it's like a survivor thing where they just want to go back to that guy. And because Wilson has gotten two saves, including that five out save at Baltimore, I think Brad Osmus is almost compelled now just to keep Wilson there as long as he's successful. And because you know they have a guy in Hardy there who's a lefty. Again, they don't trust Albuquerque in high-leverage situations. They've tried to keep him out of the eighth and ninth innings. I think Rondon has that big strikeout rate fastball that everybody wants, but he just doesn't know where the ball's going. He can't command it. So even though Wilson doesn't have the strikeouts, I think because his ground ball rate is over 50%, because he doesn't walk anybody, and then look, the teams, it's an audition now. They're not going anywhere. They're certainly not really in the playoff race anymore. They've traded so many guys, Price and Cespedes. They don't know when Cabrera's coming back. I don't see any reason why. And then I wasn't as bullish as I wish I, I probably should have been initially, but now I have to say that Alex Wilson probably gets eight or ten saves the rest of the way. And, you know, people don't have long memories, and it's one of the few advantages of growing older, but every time I hear this uh, analysis where people say he can't succeed as a closer, he doesn't strike out enough guys, and I'm old enough to remember Dan Quisenberry of the Royals, who led the league in saves three or four times with strikeout rates that were like under three strikeouts per nine because they were beating it into the ground 85% of the time. Right, and 
we probably would have, if Quisenberry had been around today, or, or if the statistical revolution had been 10 or 10, 20 years ahead of time, we would have seen all those ground balls. We would have probably seen a lot of weak contact, too. I know the last time we talked on the phone, we talked about Dallas Keuchel, and, you know, his strikeout rate is, is not the greatest, but he's getting a ton of ground balls, and a lot of them are weak ground balls. And when somebody hits a weak ground ball, it's an out. And, you know, with Quisenberry, again, you, you beat that ball into, in, into the ground and you hit a good infield behind him, those those were outs. And, and certainly they're never going over the fence either when the ball's on the ground most of the time. So you can, you can live with that. I think you can have one deficiency in your game and you can be overcome. In this case with Wilson, he has a deficiency in the strikeouts, but because his control is excellent and because his ground ball rate is excellent and because his home run to fly ball rate is excellent, I think he can make it. I think he can be their... Uh, their closer the rest of the way or their best reliever, however they want to use them. The whole ground ball rate is interesting to me. When he pitched in Boston uh, 2013-14, he, he was up and down between the minors and the majors. He had a 33% ground ball rate, 45% fly ball rate. And this year he hasn't really changed his pitch mix, but he's at 51% ground balls, an 18-point gain over the previous two years at the major league level. His fly ball rate is down from uh, the mid-40s to the mid-30s, and his line drive rate has fallen as well. All small samples, and I'll grant anybody that who wants to quibble, but my question is more broad to you, Scott. Do you think a pitcher who doesn't really seem to be changing his pitch mix can sustain such a really radical shift in his batting outcomes? That's an outstanding question, uh, which I'm not going to have a great answer for. I, one thing I, I did notice, and, and you also bring up a point that it can be hard to measure relievers sometimes because they don't throw, they don't get to a, a volume of innings quickly enough for us to feel confident about the, the size of the sample we're looking at. That's also another problem we always have with these guys. We can be a little bit more confident later in the year, but sometimes early in the year, People say, "What's you know? What's right with this guy? What's wrong with that guy?" And well, he's thrown six innings. It's really hard to tell sometimes. But one thing I did notice with Wilson is he's getting a lot more swings outside the strike zone. And so I wonder if some of these ground balls are, are if he just learned to command his pitches better, or he's actually getting a ball exactly where he wants it, where he feels like if they make contact, it's not going to go anywhere. I'm, I'm grasping at a straw here because I, I can't say that with any confidence. But I just wonder if maybe it's just a matter of becoming more mature with his command and being able to put pitches precisely where he wants them, where he feels like if the contact is made, it's not going to hurt him. It is an interesting question with small sample sizes. At what point do you start believing in them? And I think uh, if I were looking at Alex Wilson, and he's owned in all the leagues I know about, so I'm not that really concerned about uh, investigating, but I'd like to look at his game logs and see how many ground balls he gets game in, game out. Is he being consistent in generating those ground balls and getting outs with them? Because if he is, even in a rel- what looks like a relatively short sample size, I think if we see it in, in the actual game performance, that maybe there's something there. Uh, how persuaded are you by Detroit manager Brad Osmus saying he will give the closer role to Wilson? He said that on the record, but that he's keeping Blaine Hardy in reserve for late-inning situations or closer uh, save situations that involve more than a couple of uh, left-handed hitters. Right. Well, that just comes in the perfect storm of teams are a lot smarter now about interspersing their lefty and righty hitters. I remember maybe 2007, 2008, Charlie Manuel, the Phillies, you should just run three lefties out in a row. And I mean, I know Chase Utley at the time didn't really have much of a platoon split, so it wasn't like he was a big deficiency there. 
but it sure felt like Manuel was just making it easy for his opposing manager to say, okay, we have a great lefty specialist, and now we're going to throw him out there and watch Ryan Howard you know, flail against this guy or Raul Abania struggle with this guy. It just seemed like a dumb move on Manuel's part, not realizing how the game has changed. But it's going to be hard for Hardy to get saves because teams don't do that anymore. You just don't have multiple left-handed hitters in a row. So it becomes you need a perfect storm a lot of the time or just a one-out save. It's not going to be necessarily, oh, I guess in a, it could be a full-ending lefty-righty-lefty type of thing, but I feel confident that Hardy only gets maybe one or two saves. It has to, the arrows would have to all line up. The dots would have to connect. I still think Wilson gets eight or ten. And I, again, I wish, sometimes you just have to be aggressive with these pickups. You, you almost have to add now and ask questions later. And I did get Wilson in one league where I could really use the saves, but I wish I had been more aggressive in some other leagues because, Again, you can't really wait for proof a lot of these times. You just have to play pinball rather than play chess. You can't really think about the move too much. It's just a reaction. But with a little bit of perspective and a little bit of analysis and a little bit of games actually being played on the field, I do think Wilson's the play. I remember in my American League only league, I was discussing a possible trade with a guy and he wanted to include Alex Wilson, but this was while Soria was still on the roster. And so Alex Wilson just looked like one of these guys, like, why would you? you know? And he had just come off blowing a, uh, blowing a win for Annabelle Sanchez, who I had on, on another league, but I was mad at Alex Wilson for, because he had a poor performance, so I, I rejected the trade, not that I don't think it would have happened. Um, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. It's Patrick Davitt with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. Uh, we're going to have some questions that were sent in to us on our email address, Radio all one word at gmail.com. Will from Westport asks, he plays in a single league keeper with big reserve list, six guys, but he's not going to be able to move up more than a place or two. And he wants to know, should he dump out and try to build for next year? Or should he try to gain a standing spot or two and play it out hard this year? Well, it it comes down to, does your league reward, um, do you gain anything, you know, difference between seventh and sixth or seventh and fifth? You know, is there is there anything you you gain in draft slot, or do you gain anything? Is there a money spot or anything like that? If you can't finish in the money, if you, if you're pretty sure of that, then you have to look towards next year. I, I, for me, in keeper leagues, my favorite year is always the current year, and I I generally it's hard for me to give up that ghost if I think there's a chance to sneak into the money. Or in in my hometown league, we actually play our standing order generates the next year's draft order, so it's a nice way to keep everybody engaged, but. If you realize that none of that stuff is realistic for you, then yes, by all means, everything that doesn't make sense for you next year, you guys, you can't keep expiring contracts. Go out and sell them, and and make sure when I see this happen all the time, and it's very frustrating. If you are going to sell, make everybody know it. Try to do it piece by piece. Don't I mean, if somebody gives you a, a humongous offer for a bunch of stuff, that's fine. But it seems to me, my experience is usually that if you sell it off parcel by parcel, piece by piece, to different teams. One, I think you're more likely to have people not be frustrated with you. But two, I think you usually wind up doing better if you go a la carte rather than the one big bomb of a deal. But, yeah, if you you don't think you can contend uh, this year, if if that's not a realistic thing, then by all means you have to play for next year. Just make sure you get everybody engaged in that and, and try to get as many different small deals done as you can. I think that usually works best. In my American League only keeper, we let the uh, fifth place guy have the first pick in the f- subsequent year's uh, a minor league draft. We have an auction, so we we don't have draft slots, but we do have draft slots for our minor league picks. And so, if you can't be in the money at fourth spot, a lot of guys want to be in fifth because they get the top pick. And in fact, we actually instituted a rule 
that gave you the choice if you finished fourth, did you want the fourth place money, which was relatively nominal, or did you want to take the fifth place slot and vo- voluntarily surrender the, the, the money for fourth and give it to the fifth place guy so that you could have the f- first place pick? And I don't remember if anybody's ever done that. Uh, usually it would happen if so- there was some out-of-nowhere prospect, I guess, but it hasn't happened so far. Uh, Joe from Dallas asks if you've ever looked into roster construction as it affects performance in standard Yahoo leagues. And by way of example, he says, if you looked at all the first-place teams, would you find anything generally about how many offensive reserves versus pitching reserves they had, how many relievers versus starting pitchers, um, those kind of roster-constructing questions, and would you notice a significant difference between those successful teams and the unsuccessful ones? The outstanding question of which I'm not going to have a great answer for, in part because a lot of that data is not available to me. The most consistent thing, and this is not going to come to a surprise to anybody, but the most consistent thing you see with teams that win is engagement, is being active uh, on the waiver wire, being you know, monitoring and massaging their teams all through the season, especially now where you know football starts coming up and some of your leagues, league mates are going to fall by the wayside because they're not in contention. But because leagues are so specialized, and, and not to specialize in their rules, but in maybe the roster construction rules or how many bench spots you have, but just in leagues, they have different views of what type of players are valuable and not valuable. It, it's a very specific question, so it, it's hard without having the access to the data you need for a question like that. I think it's a great, it's a great question that I'm going to try to dig into if I have time in the next couple of years, but I don't have the answers right now. It's a fascinating thing to ask about that. I haven't ever looked into it either. We have some access to stats at various providers who run leagues, and uh, because you know behind the scenes everybody knows everybody, you say, look, could you ship me all the data about this or that, and it goes on. But I have been playing all this game for a long time in a lot of formats, and my two cents worth on this question is I don't think there is any magic bullet or any kind of consistent thing that anybody does that helps them win leagues. I've seen leagues won because guys really went heavy on hitting and, and got lucky on pitching. I've seen vice versa. I just don't recall ever seeing, you know, a year after year that, you know, the guy who does that, he always seems to win. And to your point, what I do see is the guy who I get 10 emails a week asking for trades, he seems to win a lot. The guy who does 20 transactions a month while I'm doing three seems to do better than I do. So it, it may it might just be a question of staying on top of your team and working as hard as you can to make it better. Uh, that's certainly a big part of it. I mean, it's almost like I, somebody could say, um, I want to be a winning poker player. What style of poker would, would be successful? And you know, every poker game is different. In some games, being the most aggressive player at the table might be really the way to go. In other games, being the most patient and the most conservative player at the table might be the way to go. It, it's all It's so context-heavy. And it's so specific to the people you're playing against that it, it's hard to give a general piece of advice in that in that uh, neighborhood. At the start of every season, we get a lot of questions about what's the best way to, to do my auction? Should I sit and wait? Should I bid aggressively on guys? And the answer is, do what the table lets you do, I think. Right. You know, I always think with auctions, I would say, if somebody asked me that question, I'd say, well, how experienced are your opponents? And, you know, do they have auction experience? There used to be, if people had never done options before, the, the spending would be like college kids with their first credit card, or just, just crazy spending early. And then somebody who who sat back usually would be in great position. But then you'd get to that next level. I think Alex Patton used to talk about this, you know, phase one, phase two, or level one. I forget the terms he had for it, but he'd talk about the evolutions of auctions, where the early evolution was people would spend too much. 
and then people would see that maybe holding back was the way to go. So early spending might be the way to go. And it's something also, if there's ever two people who hold back and save their money or two people who need the same things or want the same things, they end up not getting any benefit from that at all usually because then they fight over the same guys and they go full price anyway. So I actually think, I don't know what you think, Patrick, but a lot of times I think in, in like tell wars and leagues like that, I think it's common that sometimes the best deals come out very early. There's something about you don't want to spend your money too early. You don't want to feel like you're out of the option really early because you've bought a bunch of guys. A lot of times it seems like, and nothing's true every year, and maybe it's be totally different next year, but I think in a lot of industry or expert or experienced auctions, I wind up thinking, geez, you know, the time to buy was early. You know, my brother-in-law was in a long-time NFL fantasy league, and they switched from slot drafting to auction because they had read everywhere that it's way more fun, which it is. And he he knew that I'd been around auction uh, fantasy baseball for a long time, so he asked me for some tips. And I said, get the guys you want. You know, the old Irwin's Willing Lenny Melnick thing, uh, you know, figure out who you want and get them. And uh, I, I said, because everybody's new to this, I suspect that they're going to be conservative at the start because nobody wants to overspend because they think that as they get down to the end, they want to have lots of money. And so I said, who, who do you really want? And he said, Tom Brady, because their league is a quarterback heavy league. And I said, okay, well, you know, when you run his projected points, what's he worth? And he said, oh, 7 million in my, in my, uh, format. And I said, okay, well, be willing to bid to eight, you know, because everybody's going to have that idea and you can make up the, you know, the difference somewhere else down the road but you're not going to get another Tom Brady in this league in this format. And sure enough, he got, I think he got Tom Brady for 5.5 or something like that because everybody was sitting on their hands. And it just goes to show, I think, that the, the proper answer to the question is be aware of what's going on around you at the auction table and respond to it. And, and similarly, be aware of what's going on in the season in your league and respond to that with trade offers, with uh, trade responses and so forth. Let me ask you a question. I, I've never talked about this anybody but if you want a player at an auction are you more likely to nominate him yourself or just wait till he comes up from somebody else you know what i used to be the guy who always waited for somebody else to nominate him because i didn't want people to know whether i wanted him or not and i came to realize that when i'm participating in an auction and the and the bidding starts i don't remember who nominated him usually in the in the heat of the moment i don't i don't look at the guy at the situation and say oh, John nominated him, so he must want him or not want him. And, and if John's bidding, I'm bidding. I don't, I don't recall that very much, so it doesn't really matter to me. So if I want a player this year, uh, I wanted Paul Goldschmidt, and I don't remember if I nominated him or not. He came out early enough that it didn't much matter to me. I think down towards the end of the auction is when you have to be real careful about who you nominate because especially if somebody can outbid you, you may want to you know, try to hold on with that extra... Um, hoping that the slots all get filled so you can get your, your sleeper for a buck, but I don't think it matters. Well, I guess I guess I would say that with the better players, it's never going to matter because everybody wants Paul Goldschmidt anyway. It's not like you're, you're, you're exposed as the guy who likes Paul Goldschmidt because we all want him. But I think maybe with the middle players or the, the guys, I hate to use the word sleeper, but a player who might be maybe a sleeper or you think a little bit screened that the nomination reveals. I know in the end game is you know, all the cards are on the table. You anybody you nominate in an end game, you have to be prepared to take probably. But it's 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 a hard thing to put a put a point on. But I still think there's something to be said for trying to mask your intentions as best you can, understanding that when the player is as good as the guys like Goldschmidt, you know whatever everybody knows we like those guys. But 
I, I'm more, I lean towards not nominating the guy myself if I can avoid it. I think maybe what you need to do is sometimes do one and sometimes do the other because... Yes. Oh, there you, know, you go. There you go. You need to vary your play. Go back to the poker analogy, right? I mean, you need to vary your play. You don't want to be... You don't want to be obvious that every guy you nominate you're going to chase or every guy you nominate you're just looking to get out of the way. You, you definitely need some variation there. That's a great point. And during that auction, even if you don't want them, if you know the auction's going to be hot and heavy, you might want to throw a bid in early on so that you look like maybe you nominated a guy you did want and got forced out by the bidding when you didn't. And there, all that kind of stuff goes on. And frankly, I sometimes wonder, especially if you're dealing with owners who have a lot of experience in auctions, I, don't, I wonder if any of it really matters that much. But I will say that in the case of players who are above sleepers, Todd Zola says... Don't be so um, secretive about your sleepers because chances are nobody wants your sleeper. They've got their own, and so you don't really have to be so sneaky about it. But I think in the in the tier of players just above the sleepers, the, those fifth and fourth outfielders, in in tout mixed in the auction this year, I got Tory Hunter near the end for a buck. I got J.D. Martinez near the end for thirteen dollars or something like that. Uh, Nelson Cruz, all, all good players. And I think the, the cautionary note I would sound in that instance is you don't want to wait so long that there's only a very few players left and lots of guys have slots for those players because then you're, you're going to run into the phenomenon that you mentioned, which is two guys who have to have that guy and all of a sudden pricing goes out the window. They just bid until they, they, they start, have to stop. Right. As, as always, so many of these things come down to timing. And um, I will say, when it when it comes to tout, everybody's got a laptop. It seems like, or most people do. I do try to look around the room and get the temperature of people or the body language, some of my poker experience, and and who knows, maybe I'm fooling myself and seeing things that aren't there. But I do try to read some of that stuff, inflections, facial expressions, that type of thing, and, and see if it gives me an idea of how somebody feels about the bid that we're on or the player that we're on. I do that more in my American League league because the auction takes place at a uh, at a snail's pace. You can call time out. You, there's no real pressure, but at tout because Jeff Erickson runs the auction at at that frantic pace. I don't really find that I have a lot of time to you know lollygag around and look. I will look at how guys are auctioning in auctions players that I'm not bidding on. And I'll watch and see how how things are going. Also, I don't use a laptop anymore. I find it makes me a much better drafter. Interesting. Um, I think because there's some really good software out there. I use the RotoWire draft software. It's really good. That's how it works because it's so intuitive and easy to get a lot done in a few keystrokes. I feel that I can do it, but I would strongly encourage anybody who's overwhelmed by that, or if, if for whatever reason you just feel like it, it's frantic for you to keep up. With, and, and I think most people probably have a much slower auction than we do at Tout. I love the fact that it's quick at Tout. I think it makes a much better experience and a much better challenge for people who should be good at this stuff anyway. But that's a personal preference for people. If, if you in any way feel harried about doing computer input at, at your draft or at your auction, I would just say, you know, go with paper, do all your homework, and then just come there with a good list and work off that. Yeah, I remember my first year at Tout, I, I made up my own uh, Excel book, and I came all prepared, and I, I had it all figured out. And two players in, because I was so busy typing, I had no idea what was going on. I was already behind. I, could, I couldn't keep the thing updated. It was horrible. I had a terrible draft, and I just thought, you know what? I can't spend this much time doing data entry. I just can't. And I tried the Rotowire system, and it's really good. I've used Rotolab. It's really good. 
Like it's very quick to do the the player entry. I just like having a piece of paper. You know, it takes me back to the olden days. <laughs> no, I don't blame you. I don't blame you. And uh, you have to do what you're comfortable with. And as always, the key is going to be the preparation you do before draft day. Anyway, that's going to probably determine more than anything else how successful you are. Absolutely. Our final listener question is from Reggie in Charlotte, North Carolina. Wants to know, we have a lot of good Rookie of the Year candidates this year. Uh, which of them do you think is going to be in the MVP discussion and the Cy Young discussion two, three, four years down the road? Two guys who jump out at me are, are Chris Bryant and Noah Syndergaard. And, uh, man, you know, I'm, I'm not a Mets fan, but I, I may be one in a couple of months because look at all that young pitching and it, it, you know, it's funny how they were making a big deal out of Harvey Day every time my Harvey started. But you know, why isn't it Degrom Day or Syndergaard Day? I mean, they have Matt's looked terrific before he got hurt. But I think Syndergaard's arsenal of all those guys might be the deepest. And uh, can't believe that uh, you're up in Toronto. I mean, there are people just ruining the day this guy was traded because I, I think his upside is monstrous. And uh, tell me about that after I talk about Chris Bryant, but. You know, Chris Bryant and Jock Peterson looked like the two front runners for Rookie of the Year, and, and Peterson's really fallen on hard times. He, I think he struggled to make adjustments. He's just not making enough contact right now. But Bryant, to me, I project as a player is going to hit 40-plus home runs and, and probably be a plus defender as well. Even He's even been a really good base runner. He, he grades well there so far. So if I were starting a franchise, he'd be one of the four or five guys I'd be looking at. I, I think he will win an MVP someday. Yeah, the Toronto uh, response, now that Noah Syndergaard has blossomed, shall we say, they traded um, he and uh, Travis Darneau to uh, the Mets for R.A. Dickey, who has turned out to be something of a disaster as a Toronto Blue Jay. Although the last 10 or 12 starts, he's looked really, really good, so maybe people will forget about it. But yeah, it's it's in Toronto, it has become the cautionary note. You know, while when they gave up all the young pitching they gave up to get David Price and, and made those deals, uh, there was a lot of um, naysaying by the talk shows and what have you, saying, remember Noah Syndergaard, this might not work out as well as you hope. And, and that, may, that may be true, but you got to do what you got to do. It's like, uh, it's like playing in a keeper league in fantasy. Nobody wants to give up Noah Syndergaard, but if you're, you know, five points out of, the, out of winning the championship – and Noah Syndergaard is your cost of doing business to get those five points, then you do it, and you deal with the ramifications of later, later. I completely agree that, you know, try to win, flies fly forever. It's been said by, by many people. Um, Corey Schwartz says it, Joe Sheehan says it, more um, Baseball HQ radio alumni. Uh, try to win now and worry about next year, next year. And, and the other thing with prospects is that, especially with pitching prospects, I mean, a lot of times these guys aren't going to be good and nobody's going to care that you traded them. But, you know, it, it looks bad when they do blossom. And it's funny, I, you know, Zinke was trying to trade back. I think I had already Dickey at one point, and I traded him to him, and he was trying to trade him back to me. And I think at one point I just said, you know, look, Fred, any any offer you make that includes Harry Dickey, I don't want to do. And it turns out he's been terrific. The knuckleball is such a fickle pitch. And, uh, you know, it's funny, Stephen Wright just had a, a nice start or two for the Red Sox, and Peter Gammons was positing that you know, maybe it's the knuckleball. It's just these guys blossom so much later with the pitch, understanding it, you know, Necro, Wilhelm, all these guys seem to, to come into their own late in their 20s or in their 30s even. It certainly took Dickey a long time to get there. It's, it's just such a mystifying pitch. And when it goes good, it can be beautiful. I mean, Dickey won a Cy Young Award. When it goes bad, it's like they take batting practice against it. But it turns out that I was, I think I was wrong. Every My opinion on R.A. Dickey, which has changed a few times this year, 
has always been wrong. The current opinion I've held has always been wrong. When I didn't believe, when I believed in him, he was bad. When I didn't believe in him, he got good. And uh, now I'm just glad I don't have any more Ari Dickey decisions to make because I've been making them wrong all year. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Scott Pianowski from Yahoo Sports. And Scott, during the season, we always ask our experts to talk about some facts and flukes, players who are underperforming or overperforming expectations. And then we ask you to say if you think it's a fact, which means it'll continue, or a fluke, which means you expect regression. Let's start with the hitters. How about in the American League, an outlier hitter, and is he a fact or a fluke? Well, Haley Ramirez, second half, 448 OPS, which uh, is terrible. And, it, it, you know, I don't know why they they went for this Hanley experience. He's a, he's a player who can be moody, doesn't seem to try all the time. He's been horrendous in left field. I think he may be playing hurt. He's been probably been playing hurt most of the year. Now the Red Sox are buried in the standings. Now Hanley still qualifies as shortstop in most leagues. I know you're not going to get what you could have got for him before the season or in the probably in the first half, but... I think it's a chance that he gets shut down at some point, whether he shuts it down mentally or they shut him down because he's hurt. Certainly the team isn't in any kind of contention. I, I think he's a player who needs to be engaged. Right now he's not. I think he was shocked. People would be shocked by what I would say yes to in a Hanley Ramirez deal right now. I, I just don't see a player who, who really cares or can play, can perform at the moment. And because the team isn't anywhere close to contention, I even wonder if he plays the rest of the season. I, I think he could be shut down at any point. I don't want any part of him. So you're saying the second half uh, underperformance especially has been a fact. Uh, how about in the National League? You know, Chase Otley, we I mentioned him briefly earlier. He's probably going to be coming off the disabled list for the Phillies soon. And so people think what's going to happen to Cesar Hernandez. I, I, they did say earlier in the year that they felt really good about him being their second baseman. Then he went to a long slump in part because they, they played the Dodgers and they, they met Greinke and they met Kershaw. That kind of sparked that. But Hernandez has improved his contact rate. He's an excellent base stealer. He can play a lot of different positions. I, I think his fine play is a fact. I think they'll find a place for him. I don't think Utley's going to take his job, or if Utley does play, I think they'll put Hernandez somewhere else. Might be somebody in your league who's getting a little bit nervous because his Hernandez's production has come down. Utley's is, again, imminent return. Might be nervous about it. I think the production's a fact. I think his versatility on the field is a fact. I think he's going to be a good player the rest of the way. Certainly a great play if he needs stolen bases, like I do in Tout Wars. Can't seem to trade for them, but I think he's a fact. He's legit, and they will find a way to keep him in the lineup. Moving over to the mound in the American League, who's an outlier pitcher, and is he a fact or a fluke? Mike Fires comes over in the Carlos Gomez deal, and and, uh, he wasn't even supposed to pitch Monday, but they needed him in relief, and he was serving him up. There's a guy I've always... You never really know what to make of him because he strikes out a lot of guys, but he throws in the high 80s. doesn't really have a, a profile that makes sense about why you'd have strikeouts. I think he's going to struggle in the American League with the DH, with the adjustment period, some of the smaller parks too. I, I think what we saw Monday is a fact. I, I think mixed league, I think you need to do better than Mike Fires. I, I'm not even sure he'll be in the rotation the rest of the year when when they bring up reinforcements. I, I don't know really what the actionable piece is here, but I, I had him in a couple of mixed teams where he was a borderline player and I could cut him, and, and I don't expect anything good from him the rest of the year. A funny story in my American League only, when the big uh, exodus came over from the National League at the deadline, I put in a claim on Mike Viers and I got him, and then something had gone astray with the bidding process in the automated uh, process thing, and, and when the dust settled, somebody else got Mike Fires and I got... Uh, 
uh, Gerardo Parra, which is, uh, I think, going to be a net win for me, so I'm happy about it. How about a National League pitcher uh, who is an outlier from expectations and is he a factor of fluke? Jimmy Nelson's really put together a nice run over the last maybe six or eight weeks. He's tweaked his repertoire a little bit. He's added this spike curve that's been working for him. He's somebody who always had somewhat of a pedigree. He had a tremendous run in AAA in 2014. Came up. We talk about guys, how sometimes they need to get their feet wet and uh, you know poke around and even make mistakes sometimes. He was hit pretty hard in the National League last year. I think people got off the scent a little bit, but he had a nice camp this year. He, he was serviceable for maybe a, you know, a couple of months, but he's been terrific the last two months. Now, I don't know at what point they might look to shut him down. Obviously, the Brewers are one of the worst teams in baseball. They're not contending, but I think Jimmy Nelson's legit. I, I get the fastball 93, 94 miles an hour. He's pitching better out of the stretch this year. He's added that curve. He's getting more swings and misses. I believe he's a very solid middle-of-the-rotation piece, even in a mixed league, and he's on a few of my teams. And maybe he'll miss a start or two at the end of the year. But other than that, I think it's a fact. I think he's legit and one of the few things Brewer fans can feel good about right now. So for Scott Pianowski, Hanley Ramirez, bad performance a fact. Uh, Cesar Hernandez, good performance is a fact. And on the pitching side, Mike Fires going to struggle. That's a fact. And Jimmy Nelson's good performance a fact as well. Uh, Scott, where can listeners read or more from Scott Pianowski? Well, I'm on Yahoo Sports, uh, the Roto Arcade blog. Uh, we're there pretty much every day talking baseball, talking football, maybe even a little bit of hockey. And then Twitter, uh, Scott underscore Pianowski, P-I-A-N-O-W-S-K-I. Having a lot of fun with that. And if you're into podcasts, I can't guarantee we'll be up to the Patrick Davitt level of excellence, but uh, Michael Salfino and I have just started a, a podcast. We just did a really long one on football, on quarterbacks. You can check that out on my Twitter feed. And I'm not even sure if we're supposed to talk about this yet, but Yahoo Fantasy Sports will be having a podcast debuting, debuting very soon. That will be a uh, Monday through Friday thing. We'll be talking a lot of football on that. So if uh, if you want to read, I'm writing. If you want to listen, I'm talking. So um, come out and let's, uh, let's talk some sports. Scott Pianowski writes about fantasy baseball for Yahoo Sports and uh, about another fantasy sport the players have underinflated balls or something I don't quite understand. Uh, Scott, thanks a million for talking with us again. Uh, good luck the rest of the way. Not real good luck in Tout Mixed, of course. But are you going to Phoenix? I will not be in Phoenix. Just too much going on with football and hockey and basketball. But, um, yeah, I look forward to the rest of the Tout year. It should be a lot of fun. And, and again, thanks so much for having me. I, you, I can't think of anybody who does it better than you do. You have such a great program, and, uh, and I'm honored to, to talk to you a couple times a year. It's a lot of fun. All right, thanks very much. Scott Pianowski, uh, next up, our HQ commentaries, Then it's a big package, the Minor League Minute, playing time, frequent flyers, pitcher matchups, and master notes, all coming up after the break on Baseball HQ Radio. Coming right up, it's our regular Friday talk with Todd. We have Todd Zola coming up. But first, let me tell you about BaseballHQ.com and all the reasons we call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to keep you ahead of the game all season long with content across a wide range of great information. This week, our playing time roster updates look at the effects of Dustin Ackley going to the DL, the Rays claiming Daniel Nava off waivers, Freddie Freeman's latest injury, the Rangers demoting Leonis Martin, and more. 
Our Facts and Flukes Performance Validation looks at Paul Goldschmidt, John Axford, Yadier Molina, and many others. And our Bullpen Buyer's Guide has Doug Dennis taking a look at relievers who have a lot to consider for now and later. We also provide daily matchups reports, a daily fantasy dashboard, team coverage, minor league scouting, and of course our projections and other roster management tools that you can use to help you dominate your league and daily fantasy baseball. And it's only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners, BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined once again by Todd Zola, contributor to ESPN Fantasy Sports. Todd, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really great to be here, Patrick. You had a tweet uh, just a, a little while ago about Carlos Correa, sensational young shortstop for the Astros. Really helped, uh, the, I don't want to say he turned the team around because the team had turned around all by itself, but he certainly has given it a welcome second booster up into the stratosphere since he's been up. And you said in your tweet, he's actually broken your projections engine. What did you mean? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing my rest of season projections and was going through the final scrub and was about to post them. And he's just, it's a, he's an odd duck in that he came up, uh, he was very good. Uh, there's no lie. Obviously, he was very good. But he was hitting for more power in the minors this year than he's hit in previous years. And he's carried that over to the majors. That's one thing. And the second thing being, he's not hitting doubles. He's hitting as many doubles as he is homers, which if it were anybody but Carlos Correa, people would be saying, expect a regression in homers because he's it's, he's getting lucky but because it's this briny this shiny new toy and everybody loves him he's just going to keep hitting homers and never hit another double again so i i, I need to f- I just and i, I want to come up with an honest assessment for the final for the stretch run i owe that to the people that look at the projections so uh, it's just difficult i can't use my standard method i went in and i i took the minor league numbers that he had up until this point and made an MLE from it because my baseline did not include it so I thought that might raise his baseline a bit uh, and it does but it's, it's the whole doubles and homers and the 25% home run per fly ball I regress that and he's just going to be I was just a regular guy again and I guess I mean I, I need to be honest and my message is going to be Carlos Correa is, is not as good as he looks right now, and don't expect another 10 homers, expect another 6, and, you know, 5th or 6th best shortstop, not better than Troy Tulowitzki just yet, you know, that's what I need to, you know, I need to be honest about it, so i just trying to figure out a way to massage, not so much massage, but just figure out the proper way to project him for the rest of the season, granted that anything can happen in, in 8 weeks. Uh, so, you know, but, you know, whatever the most likely situation might be. So I've just been for about half an hour looking at different ways and other players that went through similar surges and what they ended up doing. Do I have any precedence? And there really is none that I can find that, that, that quite has quite the profile that he does. I mean, people are talking about, you go to Twitter, people are talking about him. Where are we going to draft him next year in, in like high stakes leagues? And, you know, peak first round, number one overall. I don't know if it was tongue in cheek or not. But, yeah, he's a, he's a fun guy to think about, and uh, I've been thinking about him a lot this morning. 
Now he has a 25% home run per fly ball rate, which just at, a, at an eyeball glance seems to be completely unsustainable, and yet he plays in a park that is really good for home runs. Is there a park effect here, and to what extent is the home run per fly ball effect overstated with Carlos Correa so far, and how much of a regression do you expect in that particular area, which would, of course, uh, have some ramifications for his home run output? See, that's, that's part of the problem is we don't know his baseline because in the minor leagues, he didn't hit for power until this season. And I don't have the information. And, and those that I could ask for the information, I just haven't been able to do it today. Some, some people more along the scouting, is he doing something different? Is it a different swing? Is he lofting the ball more? Because his, his fly ball rate's only around 34%. I say only. 34%'s not bad, but his fly ball rate is 34%. Now, you asked about the park effects. He's got seven homers at home and six on the road. So is there some something going on there? Yeah, probably. Uh, actually, the majority of his success, he's got a, a, over 1,000 OPS at home. So if there is some regression, it might just be at home. I don't, you know, who's, again, short sample, it could just be that his extra hot days were at home, and that's just the way it worked out. He's uh, he's he's, cr- he's killing uh, lefties, but he's got eight homers against righties too. So there's really nothing, there's no one single split in that area that's outrageous. I just think he's just run into a few fly, you know, I just, the fly balls he's hit have just been in the right spot at the right time and have left the fence, and if he had two or three fewer homers, we'd still be saying he's doing really, really good, but I think it's just raises expectation. Plus, he's hit a couple high-profile game winners or game tires that have elevated his status as well. So I just, you know, if Albert Pujols doesn't sustain a 25% home run for fly ball. So again, the way, you know, everybody likes to be sabermetrically correct and point out these things, if it was anybody but Correa, Everybody would be saying, you know, if it was it was you know Chris Colabello, oh he's going to regress because everybody wants to be be right. But like I said, because it's Correa, uh, they want it's. I think I think what you do is you sometimes you you analyze towards the narrative as opposed to vice versa, you know. And the narrative is these new shiny toys come up. We love them. We want to be right. We want to watch the minor leaguers. So it's uh you know trying to do the right thing. Figure out where to put him in. You know, you know, six homers the rest of the way is still pretty darn good for a 20-year-old a shortstop. Now, you mentioned that, that there's been some suggestion that he could be a first over, first overall pick next year. Could be, you know, in the uh, rarefied company of guys like Mike Trout and, and uh, Bryce Harper, maybe Paul Goldschmidt. And uh, it's funny you should mention that, that that home run per fly ball rate is not sustainable you don't think anyway for a full year but in 2012 when Mike Trout had his sensational I guess it was his rookie year he had 120 some at bats the year before but in 2012 he was fantastic nearly a $50 player he maintained a home run per fly ball rate of 22% that year and a fly ball rate under 35% so Carlos Correa is tracking Mike Trout in that regard although I don't think that the uh, total output is going to be the same because of the difference in at-bats, but on a per-at-bat basis, it's pretty close, although Trout stole a hell of a lot more ba- uh, bases. Well, not just that, Trout, his pedigree was more for as a power hitter in the minor leagues, Not perhaps not to the extent that, he, that he's actually showing. I think he's 
I mean, what do we think, a 25-homer guy, and he's a 35-homer guy, so it's not that big of a deal. But you said Correa was a single-digit home run guy in the minors b- previous to the season. So for this one year, he's tracking it. But, you know, is he, is he, is he a new player? Is it just, you know, 20 years old? Can we really say that this is who he is? Uh, so that that's that's sort of where I'm at. But yeah, I mean, for one season, sure. And you know, this this year, Trout's home run per fly ball is 28. percent It's 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 through the roof. But uh, you know, when he, he he's consistently, you know, th- that's another. There's an example. He's con- he's he's averaging 20 for his career, and Correa's at 25 now. So just to sort of put in perspective, where Correa is as far as home run per fly ball. You know, I don't. That's why I'm, you know I don't think I'm you know earth-shattering news that Correa is not going to keep 25 percent. I just don't know where it's going to fall, and I don't know where I should say it's going to fall more than anything else because no one knows where it's going to fall. I just don't know where I should predict it's going to fall because you know his baseline is unknown. The minor leagues it was less than average, below average. So it's it's just an interesting uh, you know anything can happen in eight weeks sort of thing too, and. Uh, it just tells you what how, how perilous this 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 job of projecting actually is. Well, it certainly is, and and something that you said earlier really makes that jump forward. And that is, we knew that Mike Trout coming out of minor league baseball, what kind of player we could expect him to be. But because uh, Carlos Correa was quite young, relatively speaking, and it's only a couple of years, but it's a huge difference in terms of baseball development. It's much more difficult to take a player like that and say, here's what we expect from this guy because he just didn't have a track record at any level of the minors that you could really sink your teeth into. Right. I mean, 18, well, in A-ball, at 18 in A-ball, he had nine homers and 519 plate appearances. I mean, that's 18 years old in A-ball. So he's a year, year and a half young for that, that age. And in, in a plus ball at 19, he had six in 293. If you double that, that's 12. So it looked like he had, you know, teens home run power, but he's got teens home runs and 223 at bats are plate appearances so far. He's doubled what this baseline at least looked like, and it's even it was even impossible to get a baseline for him because most MLEs don't use A and A plus ball and that's all he had to this point so even his even his original MLE I don't want to use the word fudge but you know we don't trust MLEs below double A so whoever did project him you know you're using an untrustworthy MLE to begin with and that's sort of why well maybe if I go in and and base it off of his performance in A and AA and AAA this year and use that as my MLE when he got promoted it, it helped like I said it helped it a bit but even then he he had seven homers he had a total of 10 homers in just about as many at bats in the minors as he as he does in the main he has the same amount of plate appearances to this point he had 246 before he got called up and he had 10 homers combined He's got fewer. He's got 223, and now he's got 14 homers. So he's showing even more power in the majors. Now that could be the park that you mentioned, and it could just be it could just be uh, travel on on uh, travels easier. He's not taking buses, and the, the parks could major league parks, etc. It could be a whole bunch of, of other factors as well. But as I'm saying, there's just you have to inject a little subjectivity 
to this, and I'm just not sure <laughs> uh, what to do. It's even going to be more fun next year when we try to project him for the season. I mean, eight weeks, who knows? And we are going to have another eight weeks' worth of data. And all it's going to take is one couple-week slump and bring things down and make it a little bit more realistic for next year. But if he keeps his pace up, the numbers are going to put him, because the MLEs are going to be for last year, and, and the, all we're going to base on is, is la well, this year now, next year will be last year, and it's just going to be through the roof. So uh, I have a suspicion I'm not going to be owning Carlos Correa uh, in any teams next year because he's just going to be the golden boy. And if I get burned, I get burned. Now he's just over 200 at-bats. If we assume like a 550 at-bat sort of season, we are, and just prorate what he's got to date, we are looking at, at over 30 home runs, over 20 stolen bases, around 90 at-bat, uh, 90 RBIs, I'm sorry. If I set the over-under at... 35 homers, 90 RBIs, 20 stolen bases, and a 285 batting average. Uh, just go through them. Uh, take uh, take the over/under on home runs first of all. 30, I'll say 35 home runs, over or under next year. <laughs> There's only about five guys in the league. I take the over on. I'll take the. I'm taking the under and, and sleeping like a baby on that one. Okay, how about 30? Uh, I'm still I'm still taking the under. We're gonna we're not gonna go much further, but I'll take the under on 30. And how about uh, 90 RBIs? Um, if he stays in the second spot, I'll take the under. But if they drop him down to the third spot, I think that's about right. 25 stolen bases. That's a tough one. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, I will, uh, I'll take the over, but not by much. And finally, 285 for a batting average. You know what? I like that one because he does make pretty good contact. So I will... Uh, I will, cause I think what's going to happen is instead of getting these homers, they're going to be doubles. They're still going to be hits. So I'll, I'll, I'll take, I'll take the over, but I think 285 is a real good number. I one thing I like about Carlos Correa so far, when he came up in in June, his walk rate was three percent and his contact rate was under 80. Then in July, his walk rate jumped to 11%, and he put his contact rate around the same level. In August so far, and that's only, what, uh, barely a week in, but he's up to 14% walks and an 88% contact rate, which seems to mean he's getting the knack of what's going on at the major league level, and that has to be good news for anybody who's looking at what he might accomplish as he gets more mature physically. He seems to be getting the gist of it uh, mentally pretty quickly. Yeah, I noticed that. I didn't talk about that, but that was part of that was there's a push pull sort of thing, and that's pulling me towards this is real because I, I we've talked about it before. Uh, contact is sort of my main filter, and walks being there as well. And even in this day and age where you know you, we you say twenty percent, but we'll even you know twenty one, twenty two percent strikeout rate. We no longer think that's horrible just because that's the way that the the, the, the season or the the league has, has moved. To be below 20 at 20 years old is just fantastic, and to me that that's the that's the when you do an MLE, that's the stat that takes the biggest hit when you go from level to level when you translate the strikeouts. That's the one that you know when you keep going up in level, you're getting more strikeouts, more strikeouts, and that's he hasn't shown that yet. And we've also talked about that contact. Is the first it stabilizes quickly, so even though he is 20, and I'm talking about having no baseline, he does have enough plate appearances that the contact rate he's showing now 
is his baseline, which to me is an excellent sign. Uh, so, you know, I, I, he's not going to be my first overall pick. I'm not saying I'm not going to think he's very good. I just think people are going to think he's a little bit better than where I'm going to have him placed. That's all. Would you take him over uh, Andrew McCutcheon next year? You know, that funny you should say that because I was look. He's the other guy in my projections that I'm looking at because it's it's carrying over, still carrying over some uh, some stuff and and. I, I, I'm not buying my own projection for the rest of the season. You know, I was looking to see what goes into it. That's going to be a tough one. I Would it be would it shock anybody if, you know, on some quiet day in December we found out that he's been playing through an injury all year long? I don't know that it would shock anybody. But I, uh, that's a tough one. McCutcheon in general is a tough one for me because it took me a long time to actually come around in, in, when he first started to be a top five, top ten player because I didn't see it. And so I, f- I finally bought into it. And in his level or the, the, his able to sustain that, it's almost making me wish that I had just stuck to my guns and said, well, yeah, he had a couple of good years, but the things I was scared about, he, it's showing to come to fruition. He just happened to have a couple really good years in between. Uh, th- that's a tough one. Right now, I'm going to put him around, around equal. But I think that's going to be because I'm dropping McCutcheon uh, probably into the uh, late first, early second round area, and that to me that's even a hedge. Either he's a top five or he's a number, th- you know, thirtieth overall. Uh, I, but to me, uh, right now, I'm a little hesitant on McCutcheon unless we find out. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's been that nagging injury because he spent the entire spring on the injury report with a, you know ambiguous lower body ache i've had those they're terrible (laughs) (laughs) yeah mine aren't so ambiguous though (laughs) you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick david with todd zola and todd uh, you're at masters ball you regularly review every week all the fab bidding that goes on in both tout wars and labor and uh at the conclusion of your Tout Wars analysis this week, you made a comment about how you're not a real big fan of the Vickery method. And uh, I know probably most of our listeners are familiar, but start us off by just explaining what the Vickery method is very briefly and then explain why you don't like it. Okay. Uh, Vickery is uh, named after an economist that did some work and showed that the, the way to go about bidding in an auction sort of situation and I believe eBay uses this is the the bids are truer if the winning bid is one dollar more or one unit more than the second highest bid and I I guess I believe this is what eBay does in some of the online uh, auction systems I don't use them so I don't know I can't speak firsthand but as far as relating it to this is tout wars if if you bid uh, seven dollars on a player and I bid 19 on a player and we're the only two that bid I get that player for eight dollars one more than your bid um, and this is this is the way that that tout wars does its its fab and through this course of the season it, it it's really not an issue not so much not an issue but it's it just it is you know it, it's seamless because it's just a you know, regular amount of players that come up for bid and etc 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 but this week obviously was the deadline trade week and in the American League we all know that there were a a goodly amount of players we talked about them last week some of the other uh, analysts and I went through all the different trades and and the different players that came over the AL and 
it was just a real weird confluence of factors in the American League, and I happen to be the SWAT for the American League, so it was my responsibility to, to figure this out. There were a few of the guys that had a, a goodly amount of fab left, which is fine, and what they did was a couple of the guys at the top, instead of just max bidding and trying to you know just get the best player, they tried to split it up so that they were able to get multiple players with their large amount of monies and there was a lot of players coming over so if you were further down in the standings and didn't need the impact of one guy it makes perfectly sense i'm not i have nothing against anybody in the league what they did you know i maybe would have done the same thing it just uh you know when i got an email saying you must be you know you must be po'd at this guy i said nah, not po'd at that guy the guy did what he's supposed to do uh, but what ended up happening was the actual player was troy tulowitzki he went for a a relatively small amount of fab, he should you know think of, he should be a max big guy, but he went for in, in this like in this 39, 39 units, and with le- far less than half of what some of the guys had. The reason being, like I said, is is people tried to split up, and uh, Rob Liebowitz, my 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 colleague at Masters Ball, max bid, he got Carlos Gomez, the guy he wanted, Bing Bang Boom, but from there it it all got split up, and what happens is. We have another rule in Tut Wars, and this is the rule I don't like. Is I, Vickery I don't mind, but th- this this is the rule that I don't think every Vickery League does this. But what we do is once a player's sort of undisputed and you know where he's going, you subtract that the Vickery amount from his total, and now he has a new total, and that there therefore gets now carried through the rest of the calculation, and it may be different than what he had bid, but as long as you've got enough to cover the bid it's a legal bid so I had to go through and redo all the bids by hands because the machine couldn't handle it and not only does it impact the actual bid it impacts the underbids and then once you start doing that you get into a couple of infinite loop sort of situations and just a whole big mishmash of a puzzle and it just took took a lot of time to uh, to sort through and you know that's what it was and, and and i actually you know so i tweeted out something to the effect of the nfbc has it right um i don't like you know, I, I prefer no victory give everybody a thousand dollars no zero no zero bids and i had actually talked about that last year this wasn't and this wasn't new because of it i just happened to feel that that's the the best fab system i've seen uh give a few give a few more dollars you know 10 times you know, give a thousand dollars but not allow zero bids and 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 own the bid that you that you put in and and um that was more just i don't want to say frustration but uh like i said because i talked about it last year and i've talked about it a lot that's my pref- preferred system but it just happened to be a good time to put that out there again having spent till four in the morning on sunday night trying to decipher the al tout bids just so I understand what the problem was, it was. Uh, it sounds very loopy, as you suggested, uh, that you get into these loops where if I do this, then something else happens, which creates a problem with the thing I started with in the first place. But if I had $100 to bid, and I bid $70 on Carlos Gomez, and I bid $30 on Tulowitzki, and I, and, and I get Carlos Gomez, but I get him for 35 then I only, uh, my subsequent bids are still good, which they really... In a normal bidding situation, they wouldn't be because I'd have I'd have spent my seventy bucks. I wouldn't have thirty dollars to spend on uh, Carlos or the second choice. Boy, yeah, that could be really complicated. Yeah, it, it, and, and 
the rules are the rules, and that's fine. And and in the in the in the NL, well, there were there were fewer there were fewer players, but it went chalk in that every you know everybody max bid. So who had the most got the player they wanted the most, and who had who you know the second guy got the player he wanted the second most. And actually, it turned out that the the National League had at least three, depending upon what you're looking for, four or five players that could help you down the stretch so it wasn't like nobody came over but it was just you know the they bid a little bit differently actually it was interesting in in al labor it was an interesting they don't use victory but the leader in fab because of a few injury re, uh replacements re- rebates had more than this almost like a jeopardy final answer question though the leader had m- more than double the second place guy so he had to figure out how he can get two guys because he literally had twice as much money as the second place person. And now to the second place person, does he cover does he does he cover the third place person or does he cover the first place guy going over his bid? So there was some interesting cat and if it's if you go to the Masters Ball the report, you can sort of see the numbers. But without Vickery, it just you know, the answers just flew out. You know, this 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 number, this number, this number. But I thought that was an interesting sort of cat and mouse game that the top three people had to figure out the best way to go about getting who they wanted based upon the numbers that everybody else had. Well, yeah, because the the first guy just bids if he's got if he's he had more than a hundred, as I recall, and if the second place guy was around fifty, he just has to bid fifty one, and then his trick is, do I? assume that the second place guy knows that and he will reduce his bid so I can reduce my bid. It uh, The thing I like about Vickery is that it does create these kind of tactical opportunities to try to second guess or advance guess what everybody else in the draft is going to do. In Tout Mixed, when uh, in the dealings that took place after the deadline, there were quite a few closers who came over and I'd, I'm, not, I'm out of the saves race by design, but I thought if I could get a couple of closers, I could save them for things, uh, to trade them for things that I really could use. And that was my plan. And I could have had, as it turns out, I could have had two of them and I ended up just getting the one. And uh, Rondon was the guy I, I really wanted because I had been approached already by guys saying, go get him for me and, and I'll trade you something good. And I kind of looked at who else in the list needed saves. You know, you get into all of these tactical ramifications, and then you make your best guess about how much you should bid, how much will there be left if you get victoried, how much will you have to bid, how much should you overbid, and so forth. I I like it from that point of view, but I've been a SWAT in other leagues before, and I know that these kind of things can create monumental logistical headaches. Well, I mean, I think you can go, you know, even without victory, you still have to go through the same thing the same thought processes. My only, my, my issue with Vickery, and it's sort of, it's, it stems from my issue with, with fantasy, the way it's sort of evolved in general. And the way I say it, I think that it just has too many parachutes, the game right now in general, and that there's just too many escape routes for decisions. I, I want to, I want to make a decision. I want to own it. I don't want to just draft Ian Kennedy just to use him when he's at Petco. I don't want to draft a guy and be able to put him on reserve. I'm going to take, uh, I don't know, a player that we're not sure how well he's going to do at the beginning. I'm going to draft Ike Davis, and I'm just going to leave him on reserve and see how he reacts to Oakland, see how they're going to use him. And then if he ends up playing a lot, I'll start putting him in my lineup. I want to make a decision. I want to own it. 
And Vickery, to me, is just another parachute along the lines of, of reserve lists and, and multiple week re, uh, activations and putting down the reserve list. Figure out how much he's worth to you at that moment in time, contextually to other teams, bid it, and own it. I know one week there's going to be a bunch of people searching for positions, so you may have to bid a little bit more. And the next week, if you do your homework, maybe not so many teams will be searching for that same position, so you don't have to bid as much. And, and one of the arguments for victory is that it, the numbers should be closer to each other in these two different situations, depending upon how it flushes out. But I don't. to me, it's, it's still just part of the game. In context, what he's worth to you at that time, what you're willing to pay, and pay it. Don't have that parachute of, well, I can go more and hopefully have it to be reduced. No. What do you think he's worth? Bid it and either get him or don't get him and live with it. That's just, you know, I, I don't know if it's fair that I'm picking on this one one factor and, 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 and all these other parachutes are still there. Heck, if you've got parachutes, why not have another? You know, that's a valid argument, I suppose. But... It, you know, again, it's, it's, I'm not gonna changing the, the crusading to change everybody's league. It was more just an, you know throw an opinion on Twitter once in a while, and that's the way I feel. I don't look at the Vickery method as being a parachute to protect you from overbidding. I just think it's a way of bidding that that you can game or or use tactically as you see fit. And it actually, I think it works out to be the same thing. I don't know anybody who makes a bid thinking if I overbid by a lot. I'll get Vickery back and, and I'll save some money. It may happen. I never treat it that way. I, I know I bid what I think I need to bid in the context of if there weren't Vickery, this is what I would bid. And if I get a Vickery benefit, then good for me. It's just a way to eliminate the winner's curse. And, and one of the things I like about it is that ideally what we would do is we would get together as a league once a week and we would have an open auction like we had at the start of the season. And anybody who wanted to could nominate anybody who came in and there'd be an open auction. And if you get in an open auction, it's very rare for somebody to go, you know, I'll bid one, I'll bid two, I'll bid three, I'll bid 80. Right? Nobody's going to bid the 80 bucks. They're going to always bid one or $2 more than the last bid. Um, just to, because there's no point in doing it otherwise because then you win and you do lose all the, the, the difference. And victory seems to me is just a way to kind of simulate that by saying you're, you're not going to end up spending more than a dollar more than you would have in a live auction. No, no, I understand that. And I do think, having talked to people, I do think there are people that will pump up their bid a little bit, figuring, well, all right, I, th- I think I need to pay 18 all right, well, I'm going to write down as 28. So, you know, if I, if I, if I get caught on the 28, it's not going to kill me. But, you know, so there, to me, well, I mean, put 18 or put 28. Uh, so I do know there are some people that, that, that do add on a little bit more, you know, to the point where it's almost, I don't want to call it price in, the same as price enforcing. Well, I, I bid that guy in the auction. If I had gotten him, I was okay with it. But it was more of a price enforcing bid, you know. So it's kind of the same sort of thing. Well, you know, bid what you think he's worth. But now I see, you know, I see the arguments on both sides, and I'm not arguing that that the other side is wrong. I just think it's, which is why I sort of think people misinterpreted my 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 tweet. I don't. I just like this better. There's no reason why you can't like one better than the other. It's not that I dislike victory. I I understand its place. I just happen to like something else more 
And before we let you go, Todd, uh, we have a couple of listener questions uh, sent in to bhqradio at gmail.com. And uh, Steve in Reading, Pennsylvania has a couple of interesting questions. And the first one is, since one of Baseball HQ's mantras is don't chase wins, it seems like the pricing of pitchers in daily fantasy are out of line percentage-wise with the price of hitters. And he wonders, do you have an opinion on this, whether you've done research or just through what your instincts tell you? And if you feel like he does, that is that there's a pricing uh, anomaly or inefficiency in pitcher pricing versus hitter pricing in daily, how can somebody make uh, piles of dough off the inefficiency? I don't know that I'd say it's inefficiency. Um, I do know that different sites for the DFS have a different weight towards getting that win depending upon how what the scoring system is there are some sites that you need to get the win more than on other sites it also matters if you're playing a cash versus trying to take down the tournament so i don't know that i think that the the inefficiency depending on what kind of games you're playing if you're playing a cash game i don't even worry about the win i just want innings and i just want strikeouts and if my pitcher gets the win so be it in a tournament I'm much more hoping I get that win because those extra three or four points can be, depending upon what the entry fee is, a lot of money, you know, relatively speaking, towards the entry fee, 10 or 100 times more than the entry fee might be, uh, just three or four points in the standings when there's a lot of players. So it's, you know, as far as the pricing of pitchers versus that of hitters, pitchers are guaranteed points. Hitters aren't. You know, Miguel Cabral, Miguel Cabrera's hurt, so let's use Paul Goldschmidt you know, one night can go three for five with a home run and, and, and two RBIs in a run and, and, and get 12 or 14 DFS points. The next night go one for five, and it's going to average out to Paul Goldschmidt. Pitchers don't go through those fluctuations. So when part of it is you're paying for the, the, the reliability of the, the consistency of the pitcher points. So I don't, I don't really think that they're out of scale. I think that the they are scaled properly. I don't know if it's an exact efficiency, pitchers versus hitters, but that's in general why pitchers are more. Um, but, you know, the whole don't chase wins too thing, I understand why they say it, but I think that's a little exaggerated too because, I mean, the fact remains, better pitchers that get better run support have a better chance at a win. It's just there's more variance, but... It's not a complete crapshoot as far as looking for wins go. So I think sometimes we try to get too cute about not chasing wins, and there's always going to be that reliever that gets 12, and there's always going to be that starter that just doesn't like Corey Kluber this year. But I think if you look at a correlation, better pitchers get more wins, and I think don't chase them is a little bit hyperbole. Uh, I think you can chase them, but it just less of a less of a chance that you end up getting them as our friend gene mccaffrey says there's a difference between projecting something and making it bettable and i think that's what uh, that's kind of the issue here as for uh, you've got pitchers who can't get negative scores uh, i had felix hernandez one night one night against uh, houston a third of an inning and nine earned runs so yeah they can <laughs> i can tell you that <laughs> depending on the, yeah those, we joked about it we finished below the people who didn't who put, who didn't put in a lineup in that week. That's right. So we have, we were, we were worse than the people who did who took the week off. So anyway, <laughs> I have looked at Todd the the, um, the list of players. If you just take their year to date and average it out to a game 
by game score. And I think most of the fantasy daily fantasy sites do this for you. They say, on the average, this guy's getting 4.8 points a game or whatever the case might be. And then if you divide by their salary, there are huge swings from one player to the other as far as how much it costs in fantasy dollars to acquire three points or five points or whatever it is. And I think, do you think that there's a, a market inefficiency there that people can exploit, or is that something that everybody is aware of already? Well, that's what I, what I, what I, when I do my own research, that's sort of what I do is I come up with my projection of the points you're going to score that night, and I'm able to call the salaries from the different sites, and I'm actually able to come up with a points per game or estimated or points per dollar uh, number, and I that's part of what I use in my research, but... It's not all of it because I don't think necessarily that the the best value is always the best play. I think there's other factors as well. But, I mean, even just talking about the, back to the original question, a, a pitcher will get probably in the neighborhood of, I don't know, 15 to 20 points on a, a really good pitcher on a given night, and they may cost, depending on the site, ten to $15,000. And, uh, you know, a hitter averages three to four points on some sites, eight to nine on other sites. They were averaging about one-third. I mean, it actually works out fairly close. The the salary they cost is fairly proportional. I think it's just that the the reliability of the pitchers is why strategically we say in the cash games to spend on your pitcher because uh, the even, in, even we're talking about in seasonal fantasy now is one of the most reliable subsets of all players is – are the top pitchers. You know, that's why they're you can draft them earlier or, or pay more for them in an auction now if part of the answer is reliability. This year, eh, I think we may be pulling off of that. I don't know if it's just a, a weird year or if the trend is reversing again, but the uh, reliability of pitching, both in DFS and seasonal, we're, we now can pay, we're now paying for that reliability because we're, we're now aware that it exists before we assumed it didn't. And our second question from Stephen Redding, uh, the 10% that is charged by most daily game operators seems awfully high. Do you agree and do you predict that one or more of the big name DFS websites or perhaps a new entrant might lower the vigorish, as they call it, or the fees that are charged in an effort to attract and retain customers? Of course, they can do marketing and say, we only skim 4% off the top rather than the 10 that uh, everybody else is doing. How, what do you think about the 10% fee? If you believe the numbers, and I have got no reason not to because I don't think that these companies want to get into the business of, of deception right now with everything that's going on, they're not even making money now. I mean, they're they're living off of the uh, investment money that they have that they're spending on advertising. The, the companies themselves aren't yet turning, being able to, you know, turn a profit all by themselves. At some point, will they? Will, will it go down? Perhaps. But this, I mean... The, there's so many layers to this question that go into it as far as multiple entries and the, the carrot that they're dangling and, and is it going to continue and, and now with the, the whole scripting to get teams in there. I actually think the 10% is, is, is pretty fair. Um, the high stakes leagues that I've talked about that I play in, they take 20%. So it's, 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 it's a lot less than the high stakes leagues. I think you're, you've got to remember you're, you're paying People get all goofy if they can't change their lineup right away or if the live scoring is a little bit slow. That's not free. That You have to pay for all that. 
all these sort of things, the, the customer service. I mean, you're, it's more than, to, to me, 10% isn't a whole lot. You need to be paying something to be able to play the game itself. So I'm not against, now, is someone out there going to cut it and try to get more people? Perhaps, and and maybe that is a way to go. But I think there's a reason for the 10%. I, mean, I actually, I'm surprised it's not a little bit higher. Yeah, I've, I've often thought it might be a little higher as well. The uh, point you make about overhead is a really good one. I mean, unfortunately, anytime somebody sits down at a computer keyboard, their default assumption is that everything I see should be cost-free to me, right? It's a, it's a trouble uh, that content providers have been uh, trying to figure out how to manage for the last 10 or 15 years. I'm talking about newspapers and, uh, and news sources, but also the, in the fantasy business, you try to run a, uh, um, a website that provides fantasy information, even good fantasy information, and it's very difficult to convince people that it's worth money. Everybody thinks if it's online, it should be free, and that's all there is to it. Well, too, I mean, think of all the different. It's gonna, it's gonna get the stats. It's gonna get in real time. It's gonna, it's gonna be completely secure, so no one can bust in and and change the lineups. Not to mention the whole money aspect. It's dealing with a whole ton of money. So the whole. PayPal, a credit card system, it has to be secure and, and all that sort of stuff. So I think there's a lot more to it. And then I, you know, I, I do all my work at a computer. I rarely use anything other than, but people are doing lineups on tablets and on phones and, and on everything else. And it all, all has to be compatible. And, and if, if I can put a guy in really quickly on my computer at, at deadline lock, the person riding on a train on their iPad should be able to do the same thing. So it has, you know the, the the software has to be able to handle all that sort of things, so yeah, I like it's part of you know, knowing a little bit about that end of it. That 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 more than anything surprised me. And then just how people just go goofy when uh, it takes more than two seconds for their home run to get credited, so they can see where they are in the standings. You know the the, the complaining left and right about that. So uh, you know you can't you can't have it both ways. I don't think anyway. So so uh, I wouldn't. If you're wait, if you're waiting to, for the for the vig to drop below ten percent, you might have a fly by night company that does it. But I uh, I I wouldn't wait that long. I'd jump in before then. Yeah, that's a good point too. That uh, sometimes uh, there are operators in the world who who come to people and say, "I'll do it for cheaper," and their intent is not to help you out. Their intent is to get you to sign up, give your credit card number, and then have at you. Uh, and you'll wish you were paying ten percent to one of the more established companies. We should say though that in the realm of IT, the the idea of of uh, scale really really matters and as some of these companies get bigger their overhead costs are are declining because adding on to some system is much cheaper than building the system in the first place and it could be that as we get some kind of shakeout down the road when there's you know some of the smaller players get bought up or or fall out of the business and the other companies get bigger at it they may be able to reduce their uh, the fees that they charge because their overhead is declining based on the fact that they're getting more and more benefit from the economies of scale. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's part of part of their big long-term plan as well. And, you know, a, a switch they make to one sport can carry over to another. So, you know, the, the same effort to making this change, whether it be a quick lineup switch or, or whatever it might be, they're able to apply that to all the different sports. So, sure, there's absolutely, you know, I... It's absolutely an economy. You know, I used to price when I back back when I used to be in chemical manufacturing. If someone wanted one unit, five units, ten units, or twenty units, 
the labor was the same. So I was able to, you know, charge the same amount of labor no matter what it was. And it's just the material costs. And at the end of the day, you were paying, you know, a lot less per unit when the more you bought. So, uh, I guess it's the opposite with soda though. Cause for some reason, I pay $2 for a 20 ounce and the guy in front of me in line pays a buck for a, for a two liter bottle. So I'm not sure how they price soda. Or maybe I should be buying the two-liter. I don't know. The uh, the other advantage of IT, of course, is that the cost of the equipment itself is constantly declining. And, uh, you know, I remember, uh, I don't know if you remember All-Star Stats, one of the very first providers of online fantasy baseball stats. And we paid $50 a team plus $50 for some general fee of some kind. And when we moved to our, subsequently we moved to some other providers, TQ Stats, which is now uh, the same guys run on Roto and those kind of things. And nobody, I don't think in the world, would pay 600 bucks to run a fantasy baseball league anywhere anymore. There's no reason for it. Right. And I, you know, I knew the guys from All-Star pretty well. And I mean, I sort of came in at the time. There's no way I could afford the All-Star and there's all these other places. I'm telling you, how, how do you guys, you know, get along you know you keep the business and they're just some the, their reputation of never messing up and being there for quality you know quality control and and support that peace of mind is worth something to some people and uh you know so yeah i don't think they could do it now and i don't think uh i don't think a game could come in now and and one of these dfs games can come in now and 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 use that as their selling point uh, well, they have to. I mean, part of they have to I mean that they're. I'm not saying this. I'm not, I'm not making my point very well here in my in my head. But um, you can't charge more money and be, and have it be for support. The support has to be rolled into the lower price at this point. Yeah, I agree. One of the things we really liked about All Star Stats when it was just a small family company was the service was first rate, and sometimes that helps too. Todd, uh, thanks for your service as always, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Looking forward to it, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for ESPN Fantasy Sports and, of course, a regular guest with Talk with Todd here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now, before the break, I've got a question for you. You'll remember that we were talking about Tigers reliever Alex Wilson with our guest Scott Pianowski. He's one of two players in MLB history to share a particular distinction. Do you know what it is? We'll have the answer after the break. And when we come back, we'll also have our complete package of commentaries, minor league minute playing time, frequent flyers, pitcher matchups, and master notes, all coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root. Root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Before the break, we asked you about Tigers reliever Alex Wilson, who's one of two players in MLB history to share a particular distinction. Did you know what it was? Well, Wilson is one of two big leaguers in all... Well, Wilson is one of two big leaguers in the entire history of the game who was born in Saudi Arabia. 
And the other, in case you were wondering, is Craig Stansberry, a utility middle infielder who had cups of coffees with the Padres from 2007 through 2009. Now it's time for our regular Tuesday commentaries. Coming up, we have playing time, frequent flyers, pitcher matchups, and master notes. And leading off, it's the Minor League Minute. And here with a report on Braves infield prospect Hector Oliveira is BaseballHQ.com Minor Leagues analyst Rob Gordon. Of the more than 50 prospects who changed teams in the two weeks leading up to the trade deadline, none benefited as much as Cuban-born second baseman Hector Oliveira. The Dodgers signed Oliveira to a six-year, $62.5 million deal in March 2015, less than a year after signing Cuban-born shortstop Alex Guerrero to a four-year, $28 million deal. Given the Dodgers' win-now frame of mind, it wasn't clear how, where, or when the 30-year-old Oliveira was going to find playing time in the majors. The move to the Braves creates an immediate opportunity for Oliveira to take over as the team's everyday second baseman. While Oliveira has been sidelined with injuries in the past, he still has plus athleticism and the tools to be an offensive force. He has good bat speed, above average power, and makes consistent hard contact. Defensively, Oliveira has decent range with good hands and an average arm, but is likely limited to second base as a pro. Oliveira has been on the shelf of late with a hamstring injury and hasn't played since July 13th, but for the year is hitting 348 with a 392 on base percentage and a 493 slugging percentage and just 69 at bats. Once he does return to action, he should take over at second base, and it's worth targeting in deep NL-only formats. That's BaseballHQ.com minor league analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, the BaseballHQ.com scouting team has reports and updates on top prospects, organization moves, daily call-ups, and everything else you need to keep tabs on rising stars. This week, our extensive prospect coverage includes ongoing daily call-ups reports, with prospects like Yankees right-hander Luis Severino, Boston left-hander Henry Owens, Colorado righty John Gray, Tampa third baseman Richie Schaefer, and many more. And there's our watch list report. It's a quick hit look at minor leaguers on the verge of call-up because of changes on the big league roster, their own performance, or both. Many players in the watch list are not top-level prospects, but they could provide short-term fantasy value in the right situation. In the latest edition, we cover Colorado shortstop Trevor Story, Milwaukee outfielder Domingo Santana, Detroit left-hander Matt Boyd, and many others. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your leagues, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for our Playing Time segment where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or less. In this week's edition, analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at what might happen in Los Angeles if Jock Peterson continues to struggle. In a Playing Time Tomorrow piece up last week on BaseballHQ.com, we highlighted Jock Peterson's recent struggles and what the ramifications might be in L.A.'s outfield the rest of the way. Peterson has no doubt had a fantastic rookie season with 20 homers in the first half, but he's been awful in July. He hit 169 with a 229 on base and just one home run last month. The skills were equally atrocious. His contact rate stayed in the mid-60s, which is where it's been all year, uh, but his expected batting average was down to 189, and his BPV for July was a whopping negative 29. With L.A. in the middle of a playoff run, the leash on Peterson could start to become tight. 
In such a case, Scott Van Slyke would stand to gain a fair amount of playing time if Peterson starts to ride the pine. Van Slyke's game revolves around his power, and though, and though he only has four home runs all year, Van Slyke's 169 expected power index says the home run potential is still alive and well. He's still hitting plenty of hard hit, line drives, and fly balls. Van Slyke also improved his plate skills this year with a 74% contact rate, 12% walk rate, and that's shown in, his, in Van Slyke's 344 on base percentage. With regular playing time, Van Slyke would be a must-add, even in deeper mixed leagues. Carl Crawford is another guy to watch, as long as he's healthy, of course. Crawford has had a disastrous season uh, that's been marred by an oblique injury, but his skills the past few seasons really haven't been that bad. If Crawford's actually healthy, which is a big if, he's got a shot to produce meaningful value down the stretch as well. Finally, there's Alex Guerrero, but like Peterson, Guerrero has struggled big time after a hot start. Guerrero is likely behind both Van Slyke and Crawford right now in LA's outfield, and he's probably just a late-inning pinch hitter for now. Taking the bigger picture view here, Peterson's struggles are a great example of how in-season surges and fades can easily be hidden under the weight of season-long numbers as our sample sizes grow throughout the year. So take a look at splits like the last 31 days, which we provide at BaseballHQ.com, to help identify which starters are struggling in the dog days of summer. This could affect playing time situations down the stretch. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has his playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for our Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer, because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Aaron Brooks, Zach Godley, and Kurt Casale. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. Sometimes where there's smoke, there's fire. In this week's edition for Good Flyers, we'll profile three players who may be flying under the radar in your league and who may just be the spark needed for your team to explode in the second half of the season. We'll begin in Oakland with A's starting pitcher Aaron Brooks. Last Saturday, his first start after being traded to Oakland from Kansas City, Brooks threw 64% of his pitches for strikes, allowing one run on five hits. More importantly, Brooks did not walk a single batter and, it appears, secured a spot in Oakland's starting rotation a rotation with the lowest ERA in the American League. Why is that important? Because Brooks appears to be a good fit in Oakland, where opponents reach base only 28% of the time during A's home games. Plus, Brooks has flashed elite potential at the AAA level this season. His 7.8 down, 4.3 command ratio, and 1.8 control rate all exceed the benchmarks for baseball's best pitchers as recommended by BaseballHQ.com. Even so... Brooks' holdout rotation spot with the A's may be tenuous at best. Proceed cautiously. Our second frequent flyer takes us to Arizona, where 25-year-old Diamondbacks pitcher Zach Godley, who was acquired in the trade that sent catcher Miguel Montero to the Cubs last December, is 2-0 with a 2.25 ERA and 1.17 whip through his first two starts. Named as a California League All-Star this season, Godley struck out seven batters as Major League debut on July 24th, tying the franchise record for strikeouts in a debut set by Max Scherzer in April of 2008. Drafted in the 10th round by the Cubs in 2013, Godley has produced a 10.03 dom at the minor league level and an 8.3 dom in two games at the major league level, suggesting the possibility of elite skills. 
Not to mention this 3.5 command ratio as 2.8 control rate in the minors also fit the ideal benchmarks for baseball's best pitchers, according to BaseballHQ.com. However, it's important to remember that Zach Godley, like all of our frequent flyers, are long shots who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Because Godley was promoted to the Diamondbacks from AA, skipping AAA entirely, he may be sent down quickly if he struggles. He's worth a flyer, though, especially in keeper leagues. Finally, our last frequent flyer takes us to Tampa Bay, where 26-year-old Rays rookie catcher Kurt Casale has caught the eye of team owners looking for power at the catching position. After popping 6-0 runs with almost 1,100 OPS in July, following his big league promotion on June 13th, it's certainly worth debating whether this breakout performance is a fact or a fluke. After all, a baseball forecaster did say that Casale's power hasn't materialized prior to the season. Indeed, Casale only hit four home runs for the entire season last year, but he did progress through three levels of the minors. What adds intrigue is that Casale hit four of his six July home runs in consecutive multi-home run games. That's right, he hit two home runs in two consecutive games against Detroit on July 27th and 28th. Maybe it's luck. Maybe it's skill. Maybe it reminds you of Tuffy Rhodes who went 4 for 4 with three home runs off Dwight Gooden on opening day in 1994, but batted 234 the rest of the way. Either way, maybe Kirk Casale is worth a flyer as are all of the players we've profiled this week. Aaron Brooks, Zach Godley, and Kirk Casale are our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's our pitcher matchups report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup every game, based on his opponent, the park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers whose matchup ratings are plus 2 and higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers with matchup ratings below 0. Matchup ratings between 0 and 2, they're dealer's choice. You assess them based on your risk tolerance and your league or game context. Now looking at St. Louis left-hander Jaime Garcia visiting Milwaukee in a showdown with righty Willie Peralta and a battle of southpaws in Kansas City with the White Sox Jose Quintana squaring off against the Royals Danny Duffy and more matchups. Here's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. As the dust settles on roster revisions wrought by the Major League Baseball non-waiver trade deadline, Let's use the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool to see which pitchers are starting for some of the best and some of the worst teams this weekend. And let's begin with the best team in Major League Baseball, the St. Louis Cardinals. The Cards are the only team with a winning percentage over 600. They have more wins than any other team in the majors. They have the best home record and the third best road record. They have the best record against teams at or above 500 and the fourth best record against teams below 500. St. Louis is the only team with more than 30 wins against teams at or above 500 and against teams below 500. They are the only team allowing fewer than three runs per game. Since they average scoring four runs per game, their run differential is more than one and it is one of only two that are more than one. The Cardinals are so good that it almost doesn't matter who is pitching for them. This Saturday, their starter is the double-lucky lefty, Jaime Garcia. And he's taking the highest matchup rating of the day into hitter-friendly Miller Park to face Milwaukee's Willie Peralta. 
Garcia is double lucky because he pitches for St. Louis and because in 59 innings pitched over nine starts, he has a hit rate of 23% and a strand rate of 82%. His earned run average of 198 may not hold up for the remainder of the season, but his expected earned run average is only 293 and his base performance value is 104. His first and last starts were both PQS3s, and the seven starts sandwiched in between? All PQS dominant. And he has not allowed more than three earned runs in any start this season. Garcia is a go. Willie Peralta has been neither lucky nor good. His earned run average is 455, and his whip is 150. In 63 innings pitched over 11 starts, he struck out 40 and walked 19 for a command ratio of 2-1. Peralta had a nice string of four PQS dominant starts to end April and begin May, but his average PQS score in his other seven starts is 1-7. Peralta has made two starts since returning from a two-month DL stay for a strained left oblique, and no one would blame him if he was disappointed not to have been traded away from Milwaukee, one of the worst teams in Major League Baseball. The Brewers' overall record ranks 28th. They have the worst home record in the majors, and their record against teams at or above 500 is 25th. Milwaukee also ranks 25th in run differential, averaging 3.9 runs per game while allowing 4.4 runs per game. Peralta has a problem. Wade Miley is another bad pitcher on a bad team. He carries the worst matchup rating of the day on Saturday into Detroit, where he'll have to rely on his moribund Boston teammates. The Bo Sox overall record ranks 25th in the majors and 14th in the American League. They score 4.2 runs per game and allow 4.9 runs per game. Their run differential of minus 07 is 29th. Miley's command ratio is 1-9 on 92 strikeouts and 48 walks in 127 innings pitched. His earned run average is 4.55 and his whip is 139. He's providing negative value in both 5x5 and roto leagues. Five of his 22 starts have resulted in PQS disasters, including four zeros, in which he gave up a total of 23 earned runs. He does have 11 PQS dominant starts, but never more than two in a row. Miley is a migraine. Detroit's Alfredo Simon has the good fortune of going against Miley, but he brings neither luck nor skill to his start. In six starts from mid-May to mid-June, Simon had five of his nine PQS dominant outings. Since then, he's had two PQS dominant scores and four PQS disasters. Simon's earned run average and expected earned run average are both around 450. His whip is 139, and his command ratio is 2-0 on 83 strikeouts and 42 walks in 117 innings pitched. The Tigers are still struggling without Miguel Cabrera. They've fallen below 500 and are under 500 at home as well as on the road. Simon is suspect. On Sunday in the American League, there's a lefty-lefty matchup in which both starters have risk-reward matchup ratings. As Jose Quintana of the Chicago White Sox goes to Kansas City and faces Danny Duffy of the Royals. Quintana is the better pitcher on the worst team, and Duffy is the worst pitcher on the better team. Quintana has a base performance value of 117 backed by solid base performance indicators. His PQS log shows only one PQS disaster back on April 19 and PQS dominant starts in seven of his past nine outings. Duffy has a base performance value of 13, from an expected ERA of 483, 
a whip of 142, and a command ratio of 1-5 from 54 strikeouts and 37 walks in 89 innings pitched. The Southsiders' run differential of minus 07 is tied with Boston's for 29th. The Sox are under 500 overall, under 500 on the road, under 500 against left-handers, and under 500 against teams at or above 500. Kansas City has the second-best record in Major League Baseball, the second-best record against teams under 500, and the sixth-best home record, plus a record of 19-18 and 18 against left-handers. Cue up Quintana and discard Duffy. Let's go back to Milwaukee for our final weekend matchup on Sunday, where a pair of National League right-handers have risk-reward ratings. To recap on the teams, St. Louis Cardinals, good. Milwaukee Brewers, bad. But this time, it may be a bit better to bet on the Brewers' Jimmy Nelson against the Cards' John Lackey. Nelson has five consecutive PQS dominant starts, allowing no earned runs in four of those games and only three earned runs in the other. He's had some luck on his side the past 31 days, too, with a hit rate of 24% and a strand rate of 91%, but his earned run average of 357 for the season is very close to his expected earned run average of 372, and his full season whip is 123. Nelson may be maturing right before our eyes. Lackey has been incredibly consistent. Not counting a clunker in Coors Field, he has allowed no more than three earned runs in 17 starts since April 27, posting PQS dominant starts in six of his past seven outings. His lucky charm has been a strand rate of 78%, giving him an expected ERA of 393 and an earned run average of 285, to go with a whip of 119 and a command ratio of 3-1. Nominate Nelson and live large with Lackey. So this weekend, take the high road with Jaime Garcia, Jimmy Nelson, and John Lackey. Stay away from Willie Peralta, Wade Miley, Alfredo Simon, and Danny Duffy. And if you're looking for a long shot, consider Jose Quintana. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. I'm up in the rotation this week, and I want to talk about racking. I have an idea. I freely grant that me having a good idea is not always a great thing. There's a photo of me in a rust-colored leisure suit, wearing a pinkish shirt with a collar that makes me look like I was being strangled from behind by an albatross, and a turquoise paisley tie. I thought that ensemble was a good idea, too. And in case you're wondering, no, I won't be sharing the picture. The guy who has it won't give it back until I pay the last installment on the blackmail. So here's my idea. To simplify the mechanics of choosing pitchers for streaming and for daily fantasy, I have invented a new metric, HRAC, which is short for Home Runs Per Average Ks. To pronounce the acronym, just imitate a good-sized cat expelling a hairball. Before I get into the how of this idea, let me discuss the why. Simply put, I have a pitching staff made up of pitchers who are surprisingly homer-prone. I knew this about some of them coming into draft this year. Miguel Gonzalez and John Lackey were top 10 in home runs per nine allowed in 2013-14, and Phil Hughes was number 24. Annabelle Sanchez has been a real surprise in this regard, in the same way you get a real surprise when your mechanic tells you you need a new transmission. Naturally, I wish these starters weren't always the first to jump when hitters ask to pass the taters. 
but I kept running my pitchers out there because of the other stuff they offered. Sanchez was a top 15 guy in whip and top 10 in ERA in 2013-14. Miguel Gonzalez was top 50, and Lackey and Hughes were top 50 in whip. Now, however, as the season heads into its final third, I'm in a position to win this league, and so I have to be extra careful in choosing which pitchers to start, and more importantly, which pitchers not to start the rest of the way. In both daily and short-run seasonal fantasy formats, I've decided the key to pitching success is balancing avoiding home runs with gathering strikeouts. And while this might surprise you coming from me, it makes sense, if you think about it. For a pitcher, any home run is pretty much an unqualified disaster. It adds a hit to his ledger and a run, sometimes more than one run. And the differences that result can be huge. I mentioned earlier that I had those three homer-prone pitchers. I went back and looked at their ERAs in games where they allowed home runs versus games where they didn't. For Phil Hughes, it was a 435 ERA in homer games, 302 in games without. For John Lackey, it was 575 when the long ball struck, 196 when it didn't. Miguel Gonzalez, 396 to 181. And for all pitchers in the big leagues in 2014, 534 in homer games, 263 without. The numbers this year are pretty similar, except the overall gap between homer games and non-homer games is growing even wider. Annabelle Sanchez has a 707 ERA in the many games where he's given up home runs, but where he keeps the ball in the yard, 193. Okay, I understand that as ideas go, this is not Copernicus or Einstein or even Earl Weaver. But be honest, would you have thought that ERA in games with home runs would be double or more the ERA in games without? But I know what you're thinking. Yes, strikeouts help to reduce the effects of those home run games. So I checked that too, and sure enough, it does happen. For all pitchers, in home run games, their ERA is 534, as I said. In games where they had six-plus strikeouts, though, that ERA fell to 236 despite the home run. But in games with less than six strikeouts, the ERA shot up to 624. In no homer games, as you'd expect, it's lower across the board. 263 for all pitchers, 169 for pitchers with six-plus strikeouts, and 334 for pitchers with less than six strikeouts. So there's still that difference. This is an idea I think I can use, not just in daily leagues where the advantages are obvious, but also in seasonal leagues now that the season is down to about 60 games. Every start carries a little extra weight, and carrying a little extra weight is something I know quite a bit about. Ask my doctor. And that's how I came to develop Harak. I want to have a quick way to assess whether a team is prone to whiffing, but not so prone to hitting home runs. So I found out how many home runs each team has hit this season and how many times they've struck out on a per-game basis at home and on the road. Then I calculated the ratio of how many home runs the team hit for every six strikeouts. That's what Harak is. Simple, huh? But the best ideas often are. The league-wide averages, in case you're wondering, are one home run per game, 7.6 strikeouts per game, and that works out to about a 0.8 Harak. My thinking is that I'll try to find teams well under that 0.8 Harak mark because it will indicate a team that is either hitting fewer home runs, striking out more, or ideally both. Here's what I learned. The truism that pitchers get better results at home is true. 
home runs per game, strikeouts per game, and harak are all more favorable to pitchers who are working at home. The exception might be the Mariners, who hit slightly more home runs in road parks and strike out slightly less than they do at home. For home pitching starts, which means the hitters are at my pitcher's park, I want to see the Padres, the Braves, the Pirates, the Twins, the Mets, and the Phillies. The Phils are actually under half a home run per six strikeouts, and the Mets just at half a home run per six. Teams to avoid for home pitching starts are the Mariners, as noted, and the Yankees, also the Giants. They're all right around or slightly above one harak. Now, for pitching starts on the road, that is, the hitters are at home, I want to send my guys up against all the teams under 6.0 Harak, and they are the Marlins, the Diamondbacks, the Indians, the Giants, the Cubs, and the Braves. And I've decided I will not pitch my guys on the road against the Orioles or the Yankees, and maybe the Astros. The Astros actually lead baseball in Harak at their home park, but they also strike out a lot, and they generate just a 1-12 ratio. Too high for me, but it's not as disastrous as some others. And by some others, I mean the Toronto Blue Jays. I will not start any pitcher at Rogers Center in Toronto. The Blue Jays have a remarkable 1.53 harak, a home run and a half for every six strikeouts. Partly because it's a good park for hitting, partly because they bash the heck out of the ball, and partly because they cut their strikeouts from 8.0 per game on the road to less than six at home. Now, I should close all of this by saying, if I had Clayton Kershaw or Max Scherzer or an ace of that ilk, I'd probably start him anywhere. The reason I've been thinking about this in the first place is that I don't have those kind of guys. As I mentioned earlier, I have these homer-prone, relatively low strikeout guys like Phil Hughes, John Lackey, and the bewildering Annabelle Sanchez. So get out there, join me, and start harracking. And when you do, don't be surprised if your cat gives you a sympathetic look. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt of BaseballHQ.com and a member of the Masternotes Rotation. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 7th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 48 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Friday edition of the show, Yahoo Sports fantasy writer Scott Pianowski. Always fun to talk with Scott, and I hope I can stay in front of him until or is mixed. Also, we had our regular talk with Todd commentator Todd Zola, and I want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our minor league minute analyst was Rob Gordon. Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. Our frequent flyers commentator was Alex Becky. Our market watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt. And remember, you can send us a message, anything about the show, to our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available for download. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. 
Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.